see a house like that and they think all architects are crazy. I see no cause for indignation, said Gordon L. Prescott. I think it's screamingly funny. It looks like a cross between a filling station and a comic strip idea of a rocket ship to the moon. You watch it in a couple of years, said Eugene Pettingill, and see what happens. The thing will collapse like a house of cards. Why speak in terms of years, said Guy Francon. Those modernistic stunts never last more than a season. The owner will get good and sick of it, and he'll come running home to a good old early colonial. The Heller House acquired fame throughout the countryside surrounding it. People drove out of their way to park on the road before it, to stare, point, and giggle. Gas station attendants snickered when Heller's car drove past. Heller's cook had to endure the derisive glances of shopkeepers when she went on her errands. The Heller house was known in the neighborhood as the Booby Hatch. Peter Keating told his friends in the profession with an indulgent smile, Now, now, you shouldn't say that about him. I've known Howard Rourke for a long time, and he's got quite a talent, quite. He's even worked for me once. He's just gone haywire on that house. He'll learn. He has a future. Oh, you don't think he has? You really don't think he has? Ellsworth M. Toohey, who let no stone spring from the ground of America without his comment, did not know that the Heller House had been erected as far as his column was concerned. He did not consider it necessary to inform his readers about it, if only to damn it. He said nothing. Chapter 12 a column entitled Observations and Meditations by Alva Skerritt appeared daily on the front page of the New York Banner. It was a trusted guide, a source of inspiration, and a molder of public philosophy in small towns throughout the country. In this column there had appeared years ago the famous statement, We'd all be a heap sight better off if we'd forget the highfalutin notions of our fancy civilization and mind more what the savages knew long before us, to honor our mother. Alva Skerritt was a bachelor, had made two million dollars, played golf expertly, and was editor-in-chief of the Wynand Papers. It was Alva Skerritt who conceived the idea of the campaign against living conditions in the slums and Landlord Sharks, which ran in the banner for three weeks. This was material such as Alva Skerritt relished. It had human appeal and social implications. It lent itself to Sunday supplement illustrations of girls leaping into rivers, their skirts flaring well above their knees. It boosted circulation. It embarrassed the sharks who owned a stretch of blocks by the East River, selected as the dire example of the campaign. The sharks had refused to sell these blocks to an obscure real estate company. At the end of the campaign, they surrendered and sold. No one could prove that the real estate company was owned by a company owned by Gail Winant. The Winand papers could not be left without a campaign for long. They had just concluded one on the subject of modern aviation. They had run scientific accounts of the history of aviation in the Sunday Family Magazine supplement, with pictures ranging from Leonardo da Vinci's drawings of flying machines to the latest bomber, with the added attraction of Icarus writhing in scarlet flames, his nude body blue-green, his wax wings yellow, and the smoke purple also of a leprous hag with flaming eyes and a crystal ball, who had predicted in the eleventh century that man would fly, also of bats, vampires, and werewolves. They had run a model plane construction contest. It was open to all boys under the age of ten who wished to send in three new subscriptions to the banner. Gail Winand, who was a licensed pilot, had made a solo flight from Los Angeles to New York, 
establishing a transcontinental speed record in a small, specially built craft costing $100,000. He had made a slight miscalculation on reaching New York and had been forced to land in a rocky pasture. It had been a hair-raising landing, faultlessly executed. It had just so happened that a battery of photographers from the Banner were present in the neighborhood. Gail Wynand had stepped out of the plane. An ace pilot would have been shaken by the experience. Gail Wynand had stood before the cameras, an immaculate gardenia in the lapel of his flying jacket, his hand raised with a cigarette held between two fingers that did not tremble. When questioned about his first wish on returning to Earth, he had expressed the desire to kiss the most attractive woman present, had chosen the dowdiest old hag from the crowd and bent to kiss her gravely on the forehead, explaining that she reminded him of his mother. Later, at the start of the slum campaign, Gail Wynand had said to Alva Scarrett, Go ahead, squeeze all you can out of the thing, and had departed on his yacht for a world cruise, accompanied by an enchanting aviatrix of twenty-four, to whom he had made a present of his transcontinental plane. Alva Scarrett went ahead. Among many other steps of his campaign, he assigned Dominique Francon to investigate the condition of homes in the slums and to gather human material. Dominique Francon had just returned from a summer in Biarritz. She always took a whole summer's vacation, and Alva Scarrett granted it because she was one of his favorite employees, because he was baffled by her, and because he knew that she could quit her job whenever she pleased. Dominique Francon went to live for two weeks in the hall bedroom of an east side tenement. The room had a skylight, but no windows. There were five flights of stairs to climb, and no running water. She cooked her own meals in the kitchen of a numerous family on the floor below, she visited neighbors. She sat on the landings of fire escapes in the evenings and went to dime movies with the girls of the neighborhood. She wore frayed skirts and blouses. The abnormal fragility of her normal appearance made her look exhausted with privation in these surroundings. The neighbors felt certain that she had TB. But she moved as she had moved in the drawing room of Kiki Holcomb, with the same cold poise and confidence. She scrubbed the floor of her room. She peeled potatoes. She bathed in a tin pan of cold water. She had never done these things before. She did them expertly. She had a capacity for action, a competence that clashed incongruously with her appearance. She did not mind this new background. She was indifferent to the slums, as she had been indifferent to the drawing rooms. At the end of two weeks, she returned to her penthouse apartment on the roof of a hotel over Central Park, and her articles on life in the slums appeared in the banner. They were a merciless, brilliant account. She heard baffled questions at a dinner party. My dear, you didn't actually write those things. Dominique, you didn't really live in that place. Oh, yes, she answered. The house you own on East 12th Street, Mrs. Palmer, she said, her hand circling lazily from under the cuff of an emerald bracelet, too broad and heavy for her thin wrist. As a sewer that gets clogged every other day and runs over, all through the courtyard, it looks blue and purple in the sun, like a rainbow. The block you control for the Claridge estate, Mr. Brooks, has the most attractive stalactites growing on all the ceilings, she said, her golden head leaning to her corsage of white gardenias with drops of water sparkling on the lusterless petals. She was asked to speak in a meeting of social workers. It was an important meeting with a militant radical mood, led by some of the most prominent women in the field. Alvis Garrett was pleased and gave her his blessing. Go to it, kid, he said. Lay it on thick. We want the social workers. She stood in the speaker's pulpit of an unaired hall and looked at a flat sheet of faces, faces lecherously eager with the sense of their own virtue. She spoke evenly, without inflection. 
She said, among many other things, The family in the first floor rear do not bother to pay their rent, and the children cannot go to school for lack of clothes. The father has a charge account at a corner speakeasy. He is in good health and has a good job. The couple on the second floor have just purchased a radio for $69.95 cash. In the fourth floor front, the father of the family has not done a whole day's work in his life and does not intend to. There are nine children, supported by the local parish. There is a tenth one on its way. When she finished, there were a few claps of angry applause. She raised her hand and said, You don't have to applaud. I don't expect it. She asked politely, Are there any questions? There were no questions. When she returned home, she found Alva Scarrett waiting for her. He looked incongruous in the drawing room of her penthouse, his huge bulk perched on the edge of a delicate chair, a hunched gargoyle against the glowing spread of the city beyond a solid wall of glass. The city was like a mural designed to illuminate and complete the room. The fragile lines of spires on a black sky continued the fragile lines of the furniture. The lights glittering in distant windows threw reflections on the bare, lustrous floor. The cold precision of the angular structures outside answered the cold, inflexible grace of every object within. Alvis Garrett broke the harmony. He looked like a kindly country doctor, and like a card-sharp. His heavy face bore the benevolent paternal smile that had always been his pass-key and his trademark. He had the knack of making the kindliness of his smile add to, not detract from, his solemn appearance of dignity. His long, thin, hooked nose did detract from the kindliness, but it added to the dignity. His stomach, cantilevered over his legs, did detract from the dignity, but it added to the kindliness. He rose, beamed, and held Dominique's hand. Thought I'd drop in on my way home, he said. I've got something to tell you. How did it go, kid? As I expected. She tore her hat off and threw it down on the first chair in sight. Her hair slanted in a flat curve across her forehead and fell in a straight line to her shoulders. It looked smooth and tight, like a bathing cap of pale polished metal. She walked to the window and stood looking out over the city. She asked without turning. What did you want to tell me? Alvis Garrett watched her pleasurably. He had long since given up any attempts beyond holding her hand when not necessary or patting her shoulder. He had stopped thinking of the subject but he had a dim, half-conscious feeling, which he summed up to himself in the words, You never can tell. I've got good news for you, child, he said. I've been working out a little scheme, just a bit of reorganization, and I've figured where I'll consolidate a few things together into a women's welfare department. You know, the schools, the home economics, the care of babies, the juvenile delinquents, and all the rest of it, all to be under one head. And I see no better woman for the job than my little girl. Do you mean me? she asked, without turning. No one else but. Just as soon as Gail comes back, I'll get his okay. She turned and looked at him, her arms crossed, her hands holding her elbows. She said, Thank you, Alva, but I don't want it. What do you mean you don't want it? I mean that I don't want it. For heaven's sake. Do you realize what an advance that would be? Toward what? Your career. I never said I was planning a career. But you don't want to be running a dinky back-page column forever. Not forever. Until I get bored with it. But think of what you could do in the real game. Think of what Gale could do for you once you come to his attention. I have no desire to come to his attention. But, Dominique, we need you. The women will be for you solid after tonight. I don't think so. 
Why, I've ordered two columns held for a yarn on the meeting and your speech. She reached for the telephone and handed the receiver to him. She said, You'd better tell them to kill it. Why? She searched through a litter of papers on a desk, found some typewritten sheets, and handed them to him. Here's the speech I made tonight, she said. He glanced through it. He said nothing, but clasped his forehead once. Then he seized the telephone and gave orders to run as brief an account of the meeting as possible, and not to mention the speaker by name. All right, said Dominique when he dropped the receiver. Am I fired? He shook his head dolefully. Do you want to be? Not necessarily. I'll squash the business, he muttered. I'll keep it from Gale. If you wish. I really don't care one way or the other. Listen, Dominique. Oh, I know I'm not to ask any questions. Only why on earth are you always doing things like that? For no reason on earth. Look, you know, I've heard about that swank dinner where you made certain remarks on this same subject. And then you go and say things like these at a radical meeting. They're true, though. Both sides of it, aren't they? Oh, sure. But couldn't you have reversed the occasions when you chose to express them? There wouldn't have been any point in that. Was there any in what you've done? No, none at all. But it amused me. I can't figure you out, Dominique. You've done it before. You go along so beautifully, you do brilliant work, and just when you're about to make a real step forward, you spoil it by pulling something like this. Why? Perhaps that is precisely why. Will you tell me? As a friend, because I like you and I'm interested in you. What are you really after? I should think that's obvious. I'm after nothing at all. He spread his hands open, shrugging helplessly. She smiled gaily. What is there to look so mournful about? I like you too, Alva, and I'm interested in you. I even like to talk to you, which is better. Now sit still and relax, and I'll get you a drink. You need a drink, Alva. She brought him a frosted glass with ice cubes ringing in the silence. You're just a nice child, Dominique, he said. Of course, that's what I am. She sat down on the edge of a table, her hands flat behind her, leaning back on two straight arms, swinging her legs slowly. She said, You know, Alva, it would be terrible if I had a job I really wanted. Well, of all things, well, of all fool things to say. What do you mean? Just that. That it would be terrible to have a job I enjoyed and did not want to lose? Why? Because I would have to depend on you. You're a wonderful person, Alva, but not exactly inspiring. And I don't think it would be beautiful to cringe before a whip in your hand. Oh, don't protest. It would be such a polite little whip, and that's what would make it uglier. I would have to depend on our boss, Gale. He's a great man, I'm sure. Only I'd just as soon never set eyes on him. Whatever gives you such a crazy attitude, when you know that Gale and I would do anything for you? And I, personally... It's not only that, Alva. It's not you alone. If I found a job, a project, an idea, or a person I wanted, I'd have to depend on the whole world. Everything has strings leading to everything else. We're all so tied together. We're all in a net. The net is waiting, and we're pushed into it by one single desire. You want a thing, and it's precious to you. Do you know who is standing ready to tear it out of your hands? You can't know. It may be so involved and so far away, but someone is ready. And you're afraid of them all. 
and you cringe and you crawl and you beg and you accept them, just so they'll let you keep it. And look at whom you come to accept. If I'm correct in gathering that you're criticizing mankind in general, you know, it's such a peculiar thing, our idea of mankind in general. We all have a sort of vague, glowing picture when we say that, something solemn, big, and important. But actually, all we know of it is the people we meet in our lifetime. Look at them. Do you know any you'd feel big and solemn about? There's nothing but housewives haggling at pushcarts, drooling brats who write dirty words on the sidewalks and drunken debutantes, or their spiritual equivalents. As a matter of fact, one can feel some respect for people when they suffer. They have a certain dignity. But have you ever looked at them when they're enjoying themselves? That's when you see the truth. Look at those who spend the money they've slaved for at amusement parks and sideshows. Look at those who are rich and have the whole world open to them. Observe what they pick out for enjoyment. Watch them in the smarter speakeasies. That's your mankind in general. I don't want to touch it. But hell, that's not the way to look at it. That's not the whole picture. There's some good in the worst of us. There's always a redeeming feature. So much the worse. Is it an inspiring sight to see a man commit a heroic gesture and then learn that he goes to vaudeville shows for relaxation? Or see a man who's painted a magnificent canvas and learn that he spends his time sleeping with every slut he meets? What do you want? Perfection? Or nothing? So you see, I take the nothing. That doesn't make sense. I take the only desire one can really permit oneself. Freedom, Alva. Freedom. You call that freedom? To ask nothing, to expect nothing, to depend on nothing. What if you found something you wanted? I won't find it. I won't choose to see it. It would be part of that lovely world of ours. I'd have to share it with all the rest of you, and I wouldn't. You know, I never open again any great book I've read and loved. It hurts me to think of the other eyes that have read it and of what they were. Things like that can't be shared. Not with people like that. Dominique, it's abnormal to feel so strongly about anything. That's the only way I can feel. Or not at all. Dominique, my dear, he said with earnest, sincere concern. I wish I'd been your father. What kind of tragedy did you have in your childhood? Why, none at all. I had a wonderful childhood, free and peaceful, and not bothered too much by anybody. Well, yes, I did feel bored very often, but I'm used to that. I suppose you're just an unfortunate product of our times. That's what I've always said. We're too cynical, too decadent. If we went back in all humility to the simple virtues... Alva, how can you start on that stuff? That's only for your editorials. She stopped, seeing his eyes. They looked puzzled and a little hurt. Then she laughed. I'm wrong. You really do believe all that. If it's actually believing, or whatever it is you do that takes its place. Oh, Alva, that's why I love you. That's why I'm doing again right now what I did tonight at the meeting. What? he asked, bewildered. Talking as I am talking. To you as you are. It's nice talking to you about such things. Do you know, Alva, that primitive people made statues of their gods in man's likeness? Just think of what a statue of you would look like, of you nude, your stomach and all. Now what's that in relation to? To nothing at all, darling, forgive me. She added, You know, I love statues of naked men. 
Don't look so silly. I said statues. I had one in particular. It was supposed to be Helios. I got it out of a museum in Europe. I had a terrible time getting it. It wasn't for sale, of course. I think I was in love with it, Alva. I brought it home with me. Where is it? I'd like to see something you like for a change. It's broken. Broken? A museum piece? How did that happen? I broke it. How? I threw it down the air shaft. There's a concrete floor below. Are you totally crazy? Why? So that no one else would ever see it. Dominique. She jerked her head as if to shake off the subject. The straight mass of her hair stirred in a heavy ripple, like a wave through a half-liquid pool of mercury. She said, I'm sorry, darling, I didn't want to shock you. I thought I could speak to you because you're the one person who's impervious to any sort of shock. I shouldn't have. It's no use, I guess. She jumped lightly off the table. Run on home, Alva, she said. It's getting late. I'm tired. See you tomorrow. Guy Francon read his daughter's articles. He heard of the remarks she had made at the reception and at the meeting of social workers. He understood nothing of it but he understood that it had been precisely the sequence of events to expect from his daughter. It preyed on his mind, with the bewildered feeling of apprehension which the thought of her always brought him. He asked himself whether he actually hated his daughter. But one picture came back to his mind, irrelevantly, whenever he asked himself that question. It was a picture of her childhood, of a day from some forgotten summer on his country estate in Connecticut long ago. He had forgotten the rest of that day and what had led to the one moment he remembered. But he remembered how he stood on the terrace and saw her leaping over a high green hedge at the end of the lawn. The hedge seemed too high for her little body. He had time to think that she could not make it, in the very moment when he saw her flying triumphantly over the green barrier. He could not remember the beginning nor the end of that leap. But he still saw, clearly and sharply, as on a square of movie film cut out and held motionless forever, the one instant when her body hung in space, her long legs flung wide, her thin arms thrown up, hands braced against the air, her white dress and blonde hair spread in two broad flat mats on the wind, a single moment, the flash of a small body and the greatest burst of ecstatic freedom he had ever witnessed in his life. He did not know why that moment remained with him, what significance, unheeded at the time, had preserved it for him when so much else of greater import had been lost. He did not know why he had to see that moment again whenever he felt bitterness for his daughter, nor why, seeing it, he felt that unbearable twinge of tenderness. He told himself merely that his paternal affection was asserting itself quite against his will. But, in an awkward, unthinking way, he wanted to help her, not knowing, not wanting to know what she had to be helped against. So he began to look more frequently at Peter Keating he began to accept the solution which he never quite admitted to himself. He found comfort in the person of Peter Keating, and he felt that Keating's simple, stable wholesomeness was just the support needed by the unhealthy inconstancy of his daughter. Keating would not admit that he had tried to see Dominique again, persistently and without results. He had obtained her telephone number from Francone long ago, and he had called her often. She had answered and laughed gaily and told him that of course she'd see him, she knew she wouldn't be able to escape it, but she was so busy for weeks to come, and would he give her a ring by the first of next month? Francone guessed it. He told Keating he would ask Dominique to lunch and bring them together again. That is, he added, 
I'll try to ask her. She'll refuse, of course. Dominique surprised him again. She accepted promptly and cheerfully. She met them at a restaurant, and she smiled as if this were a reunion she welcomed. She talked gaily, and Keating felt enchanted, at ease, wondering why he had ever feared her. At the end of a half-hour, she looked at Francona and said, It was wonderful of you to take time off to see me, Father, particularly when you're so busy and have so many appointments. Francone's face assumed a look of consternation. My God, Dominique, that reminds me. You have an appointment you forgot, she asked gently. Confounded, yes, it slipped my mind entirely. Old Andrew Colson phoned this morning, and I forgot to make a note of it, and he insisted on seeing me at two o'clock. You know how it is. I just simply can't refuse to see Andrew Colson. Confounded. Today, of all... He added suspiciously. How did you know it? Why, I didn't know it at all. It's perfectly all right, Father. Mr. Keating and I will excuse you, and we'll have a lovely luncheon together, and I have no appointments at all for the day, so you don't have to be afraid that I'll escape from him. Francone wondered whether she knew that that had been the excuse he'd prepared in advance in order to leave her alone with Keating. He could not be sure. She was looking straight at him. Her eyes seemed just a bit too candid. He was glad to escape. Dominique turned to Keating with a glance so gentle that it could mean nothing but contempt. Now let's relax, she said. We both know what Father is after, so it's perfectly all right. Don't let it embarrass you. It doesn't embarrass me. It's nice that you've got Father on a leash. But I know it's not helpful to you to have him pulling ahead of the leash. So let's forget it and eat our lunch. He wanted to rise and walk out, and knew in furious helplessness that he wouldn't. She said, don't frown, Peter. You might as well call me Dominique, because we'll come to that anyway sooner or later. I'll probably see a great deal of you. I see so many people. And if it will please Father to have you as one of them, why not? For the rest of the luncheon she spoke to him as to an old friend, gaily and openly, with a disquieting candor which seemed to show that there was nothing to conceal, but showed that it was best to attempt no probe. The exquisite kindliness of her manner suggested that their relationship was of no possible consequence, that she could not pay him the tribute of hostility. He knew that he disliked her violently. But he watched the shape of her mouth, the movements of her lips framing words. He watched the way she crossed her legs, a gesture smooth and exact, like an expensive instrument being folded. And he could not escape the feeling of incredulous admiration he had experienced when he had seen her for the first time. When they were leaving, she said, Will you take me to the theater tonight, Peter? I don't care what play, any one of them. Call for me after dinner. Tell Father about it. It will please him. Though, of course, he should know better than to be pleased, said Keating. And so should I. But I'll be delighted just the same, Dominique. Why should you know better? Because you have no desire to go to a theater or to see me tonight. None whatever. I'm beginning to like you, Peter. Call for me at half-past eight. When Keating returned to the office, Francone called him upstairs at once. Well? Francone asked anxiously. What's the matter, Guy? said Keating, his voice innocent. Why are you so concerned? Well, I... I'm just... Frankly, I'm interested to see whether you two could get together at all. I think you'd be a good influence for her. What happened? Nothing at all. We had a lovely time. You know your restaurants. The food was wonderful. Oh, yes, I'm taking your daughter to a show tonight. No. Why, yes. 
How did you ever manage that? Keating shrugged. I told you one mustn't be afraid of Dominique. I'm not afraid, but... Oh, is it Dominique already? My congratulations, Peter. I'm not afraid. It's only that I can't figure her out. No one can approach her. She's never had a single girlfriend, not even in kindergarten. There's always a mob around her, but never a friend. I don't know what to think. There she is now living all alone, always with a crowd of men around, and... Now, Guy, you mustn't think anything dishonorable about your own daughter. I don't. That's just the trouble, that I don't. I wish I could. But she's twenty-four, Peter, and she's a virgin. I know, I'm sure of it. Can't you tell just by looking at a woman? I'm no moralist, Peter, and I think that's abnormal. It's unnatural at her age, with her looks, with the kind of utterly unrestricted existence that she leads. I wish to God she'd get married. I honestly do. Well, now, don't repeat that, of course, and don't misinterpret it. I didn't mean it as an invitation. Of course not. By the way, Peter, the hospital called while you were out. They said poor Lucius is much better. They think he'll pull through. Lucius and Hire had had a stroke, and Keating had exhibited a great deal of concern for his progress, but had not gone to visit him at the hospital. I'm so glad, said Keating. But I don't think he'll ever be able to come back to work. He's getting old, Peter. Yes, he's getting old. One reaches an age when one can't be burdened with business any longer. He let a paper knife hang between two fingers and tapped it pensively against the edge of a desk calendar. It happens to all of us, Peter, sooner or later. One must look ahead. Keating sat on the floor by the imitation logs in the fireplace of his living room. His hands clasped about his knees and listened to his mother's questions on what did Dominique look like, what did she wear, what had she said to him, and how much money did he suppose her mother had actually left her. He was meeting Dominique frequently now. He had just returned from an evening spent with her on a round of nightclubs. She always accepted his invitations. He wondered whether her attitude was deliberate proof that she could ignore him more completely by seeing him often than by refusing to see him. But each time he met her, he planned eagerly for the next meeting. He had not seen Catherine for a month. She was busy with research work which her uncle had entrusted to her in preparation for a series of his lectures. Mrs. Keating sat under a lamp, mending a slight tear in the lining of Peter's dinner jacket, reproaching him between questions for sitting on the floor in his dress trousers and best formal shirt. He paid no attention to the reproaches or the questions. But under his bored annoyance he felt an odd sense of relief, as if the stubborn stream of her words were pushing him on and justifying him. He answered once in a while, Yes, no, I don't know. Oh, yes, she's lovely, she's very lovely. It's awfully late, Mother, I'm tired, I think I'll go to bed. The doorbell rang. Well, said Mrs. Keating, what can that be at this hour? Keating rose, shrugging, and ambled to the door. It was Catherine. She stood, her two hands clasped on a large old shapeless pocketbook. She looked determined and hesitant at once. She drew back a little. She said, Good evening, Peter. Can I come in? I've got to speak to you. Katie, of course. How nice of you. Come right in. Mother, it's Katie. Mrs. Keating looked at the girl's feet, which stepped as if moving on the rolling deck of a ship. She looked at her son, and she knew that something had happened, to be handled with great caution. Good evening, Catherine, she said softly. Keating was conscious of nothing save the sudden stab of joy he had felt on seeing her. The joy told him that nothing had changed, 
that he was safe in certainty that her presence resolved all doubts. He forgot to wonder about the lateness of the hour, about her first uninvited appearance in his apartment. "'Good evening, Mrs. Keating,' she said, her voice bright and hollow. "'I hope I'm not disturbing you. It's late, probably, is it?' "'Why not at all, child?' said Mrs. Keating. Catherine hurried to speak, senselessly, hanging on to the sound of words. "'I'll just take my hat off. Where can I put it, Mrs. Keating? Here on the table? Would that be all right? No, maybe I'd better put it on this bureau. Though it's a little damp from the street, the hat is. It might hurt the varnish. It's a nice bureau. I hope it doesn't hurt the varnish.' "'What's the matter, Katie?' Keating asked, noticing at last. She looked at him, and he saw that her eyes were terrified. Her lips parted. She was trying to smile. "'Katie,' he gasped. She said nothing. "'Take your coat off. Come here. Get yourself warm by the fire.' He pushed a low bench to the fireplace. He made her sit down. She was wearing a black sweater and an old black shirt, school-girlish house garments, which she had not changed for her visit. She sat hunched, her knees drawn tight together. She said, her voice lower and more natural, with the first released sound of pain in it, You have such a nice place, so warm and roomy. Can you open the windows any time you want to? Katie, darling, he said gently. What happened? Nothing. It's not that anything really happened, only I had to speak to you, now. Tonight. He looked at Mrs. Keating. If you'd rather... No, it's perfectly all right. Mrs. Keating can hear it. Maybe it's better if she hears it. She turned to his mother and said very simply, You see, Mrs. Keating, Peter and I are engaged. She turned to him and added, her voice breaking, Peter, I want to be married now, tomorrow, as soon as possible. Mrs. Keating's hand descended slowly to her lap. She looked at Catherine, her eyes expressionless. She said quietly, with a dignity Keating had never expected of her, I didn't know it. I am very happy, my dear. You don't mind? You really don't mind at all? Catherine asked, desperately. Why, child, such things are to be decided only by you and my son. Katie, he gasped, regaining his voice. What happened? Why, as soon as possible? Oh, oh, it did sound as if... as if I were in the kind of trouble girls are supposed to... She blushed furiously. Oh, my God, no, it's not that. You know it couldn't be. Oh, you couldn't think, Peter, that I... that... No, of course not. He laughed, sitting down on the floor by her side, slipping an arm around her. But pull yourself together. What is it? You know I'd marry you tonight if you wanted me to. Only what happened? Nothing. I'm all right now. I'll tell you. You think I'm crazy. I just suddenly had the feeling that I'd never marry you, that something dreadful was happening to me and I had to escape from it. What was happening to you? I don't know. Not a thing. I was working on my research notes all day and nothing had happened at all, no calls or visitors. And then suddenly tonight I had that feeling... It was like a nightmare, you know, the kind of horror that you can't describe, that's not like anything normal at all, just the feeling that I was in mortal danger, that something was closing in on me, that I'd never escape it because it wouldn't let me and it was too late. That you'd never escape what? I don't know exactly. Everything, my whole life. You know, like quicksand, 
smooth and natural, with not a thing that you can notice about it or suspect, and you walk on it easily. When you've noticed, it's too late. And I felt that it would get me, that I'd never marry you, that I had to run, now, now or never. Have you ever had a feeling like that, just fear that you couldn't explain? Yes, he whispered. You don't think I'm crazy? No, Katie. Only what was it exactly that started it? Anything in particular? Well, it seems so silly now. She giggled apologetically. It was like this. I was sitting in my room, and it was a little chilly, so I didn't open the window. I had so many papers and books on the table, I hardly had room to write. And every time I made a note, my elbow would push something off. There were piles of things on the floor all around me, all paper, and it rustled a little because I had the door to the living room half open, and there was a little draft, I guess. Uncle was working, too, in the living room. I was getting along fine. I'd been at it for hours. Didn't even know what time it was. And then suddenly it got me. I don't know why. Maybe the room was stuffy, or maybe it was the silence. I couldn't hear a thing, not a sound in the living room. And there was that paper rustling, so softly, like somebody being choked to death. And then I looked around, and... And I couldn't see Uncle in the living room, but I saw his shadow on the wall, a huge shadow, all hunched. And it didn't move, only it was so huge. She shuddered. The thing did not seem silly to her any longer. She whispered, That's when it got me. It wouldn't move, that shadow. But I thought all that paper was moving. I thought it was rising very slowly off the floor, and it was going to come to my throat, and I was going to drown. That's when I screamed. And Peter, he didn't hear it. He didn't hear it. Because the shadow didn't move. Then I seized my hat and coat, and I ran. When I was running through the living room, I think he said, Why, Catherine, what time is it? Where are you going? Something like that, I'm not sure. But I didn't look back, and I didn't answer. I couldn't. I was afraid of him, afraid of Uncle Ellsworth, who's never said a harsh word to me in his life. That was all, Peter. I can't understand it, but I'm afraid. Not so much any more, not here with you. But I'm afraid. Mrs. Keating spoke, her voice dry and crisp. Why, it's plain what happened to you, my dear. You worked too hard and overdid it, and you just got a mite hysterical. Yes, probably. No, said Keating dully. No, it wasn't that. He was thinking of the loudspeaker in the lobby of the strike meeting. Then he added quickly, Yes, Mother's right. You're killing yourself with work, Katie. That uncle of yours will wring his neck one of these days. Oh, but it's not his fault. He doesn't want me to work. He often takes the books away from me and tells me to go to the movies. He said that himself, that I work too hard. But I like it. I think that every note I make, every little bit of information, it's going to be taught to hundreds of young students all over the country. And I think it's me who's helping to educate people. Just my own little bit in such a big cause. And I feel proud and I don't want to stop. You see, I've really got nothing to complain about. And then... Then, like tonight... I don't know what's the matter with me. Look, Katie. We'll get the license tomorrow morning, and then we'll be married at once. Anywhere you wish. Let's, Peter, she whispered. You really don't mind? I have no real reasons, but I want it. I want it so much. Then I'll know that everything's all right. We'll manage. I can get a job if you... If you're not quite ready, or... Oh, nonsense. Don't talk about that. We'll manage. It doesn't matter. 
Only let's get married and everything else will take care of itself. Darling, you understand? You do understand? Yes, Katie. Now that it's all settled, said Mrs. Keating, I'll fix you a cup of hot tea, Catherine. You'll need it before you go home. She prepared the tea, and Catherine drank it gratefully and said, smiling, I... I've often been afraid that you wouldn't approve, Mrs. Keating. Whatever gave you that idea? Mrs. Keating drawled, her voice not in the tone of a question. Now you run on home like a good girl and get a good night's sleep. Mother, couldn't Katie stay here tonight? She could sleep with you. Well, now, Peter, don't get hysterical. What would her uncle think? Oh, no, of course not. I'll be perfectly all right, Peter. I'll go home. Not if you... I'm not afraid. Not now. I'm fine. You don't think that I'm really scared of Uncle Ellsworth? Well, all right. But don't go yet. Now, Peter, said Mrs. Keating, you don't want her to be running around the streets later than she has to. I'll take her home. No, said Catherine. I don't want to be sillier than I am. No, I won't let you. He kissed her at the door, and he said, I'll come for you at ten o'clock tomorrow morning, and we'll go for the license. Yes, Peter, she whispered. He closed the door after her, and he stood for a moment, not noticing that he was clenching his fists. Then he walked defiantly back to the living room, and he stopped, his hands in his pockets, facing his mother. He looked at her, his glance a silent demand. Mrs. Keating sat looking at him quietly, without pretending to ignore the glance, and without answering it. Then she asked, Do you want to go to bed, Peter? He had expected anything but that. He felt a violent impulse to seize the chance, to turn, leave the room, and escape. But he had to learn what she thought. He had to justify himself. Now, Mother, I'm not going to listen to any objections. I've made no objections, said Mrs. Keating. Mother, I want you to understand that I love Katie, that nothing can stop me now, and that's that. Very well, Peter. I don't see what it is that you dislike about her. What I dislike or like is of no importance to you any more. Oh, yes, Mother, of course it is. You know it is. How can you say that? Peter, I have no likes or dislikes, as far as I'm concerned. I have no thought for myself at all, because nothing in the world matters to me except you. It might be old-fashioned, but that's the way I am. I know I shouldn't be, because children don't appreciate it nowadays. But I can't help it. Oh, Mother, you know that I appreciate it. You know that I wouldn't want to hurt you. You can't hurt me, Peter, except by hurting yourself, and that. That's hard to bear. How am I hurting myself? Well, if you won't refuse to listen to me, I've never refused to listen to you. If you do want to hear my opinion, I'll say that this is the funeral of twenty-nine years of my life, of all the hopes I've had for you. But why? Why? It's not that I dislike Catherine, Peter. I like her very much. She's a nice girl. If she doesn't let herself go to pieces often and pick things out of thin air like that. But she's a respectable girl, and I'd say she'd make a good wife for anybody, for any nice, plodding, respectable boy. But to think of it for you, Peter. For you. But you're modest, Peter. You're too modest. That's always been your trouble. You don't appreciate yourself. You think you're just like anybody else. I certainly don't. And I won't have anyone think that. Then use your head. Don't you know what's ahead of you? Don't you see how far you've come already and how far you're going? You have a chance to become... 
well, not the very best, but pretty near the top in the architectural profession. And pretty near the top? Is that what you think? If I can't be the very best, if I can't be the one architect of this country in my day, I don't want any damn part of it. Ah, but one doesn't get to that, Peter, by falling down on the job. One doesn't get to be first in anything without the strength to make some sacrifices. But your life doesn't belong to you, Peter, if you're really aiming high. You can't allow yourself to indulge every whim as ordinary people can, because with them it doesn't matter anyway. It's not you or me or what we feel, Peter. It's your career. It takes strength to deny yourself in order to win other people's respect. You just dislike Katie, and you let your own prejudice... Whatever would I dislike about her? Well, of course, I can't say that I approve of a girl who has so little consideration for her man that she'll run to him and upset him over nothing at all and ask him to chuck his future out the window just because she gets some crazy notion. That shows what help you can expect from a wife like that. But as far as I'm concerned, if you think that I'm worried about myself, well, you're just blind, Peter. Don't you see that for me personally, it would be a perfect match? Because I'd have no trouble with Catherine. I could get along with her beautifully. She'd be respectful and obedient to her mother-in-law. While, on the other hand, Miss Francone, he winced. He had known that this would come. It was the one subject he had been afraid to hear mentioned. Oh, yes, Peter, said Mrs. Keating, quietly, firmly. We've got to speak of that. Now I'm sure I could never manage Miss Francone, and an elegant society girl like that wouldn't even stand for a dowdy, uneducated mother like me. She'd probably edge me out of the house. Oh, yes, Peter. But you see, it's not me that I'm thinking of. Mother, he said harshly, that part of it is pure drivel about my having a chance with Dominique. That hellcat, I'm not sure she'd ever look at me. You're slipping, Peter. There was a time when you wouldn't have admitted that there was anything you couldn't get. But I don't want her, Mother. Oh, you don't, don't you? Well, there you are. Isn't that what I've been saying? Look at yourself. There, you've got Francone, the best architect in town, just where you want him. He's practically begging you to take a partnership, at your age, over how many other older men's heads. He's not permitting, he's asking you to marry his daughter, and you'll walk in tomorrow and you'll present to him the little nobody you've gone and married. Just stop thinking of yourself for a moment and think of others a bit. How do you suppose he'll like that? How will he like it when you show him the little gutter snipe that you've preferred to his daughter? He won't like it. Keating whispered. You bet your life he won't. You bet your life he'll kick you right out on the street. He'll find plenty who'll jump at the chance to take your place. How about that Bennett fellow? Oh, no. Keating gasped so furiously that she knew she had struck right. Not Bennett. Yes, she said triumphantly. Bennett, that's what it'll be, Francone and Bennett. While you'll be pounding the pavements looking for a job. But you'll have a wife. Oh, yes, you'll have a wife. Mother, please, he whispered so desperately that she could allow herself to go on without restraint. This is the kind of wife you'll have, a clumsy little girl who won't know where to put her hands or feet, a sheepish little thing who'll run and hide from any important person that you'll want to bring to the house. So you think you're so good? Don't kid yourself, Peter Keating. No great man ever got there alone. Don't you shrug it off, how much the right woman's helped the best of them. Your Francone didn't marry a chambermaid. You bet your life he didn't. Just try to see things through other people's eyes for a bit. What will they think of your wife? What would they think of you? You don't make your living building chicken coops for soda jerkers. Don't you forget that. You've got to play the game as the big men of this world see it. You've got to live up to them. 
What would they think of a man who's married to a common little piece of baggage like that? Will they admire you? Will they trust you? Will they respect you? Shut up, he cried. But she went on. She spoke for a long time, while he sat cracking his knuckles savagely, moaning once in a while. But I love her. I can't, mother, I can't. I love her. She released him when the streets outside were gray with the light of morning. She let him stumble off to his room to the accompaniment of the last gentle, weary sounds of her voice. At least, Peter, you can do that much. Just a few months. Ask her to wait just a few months. Hire might die any moment, and then once you're a partner, you can marry her and you might get away with it. She won't mind waiting just that little bit longer if she loves you. Think it over, Peter. And while you're thinking it over, just think a bit that if you do this now, you'll be breaking your mother's heart. It's not important, but take just a tiny notice of that. Think of yourself for an hour, but give one minute to the thought of others. He did not try to sleep. He did not undress, but sat on his bed for hours. And the thing clearest in his mind was the wish to find himself transported a year ahead when everything would have been settled. He did not care how. He had decided nothing when he rang the doorbell of Catherine's apartment at ten o'clock. He felt dimly that she would take his hand, that she would lead him, that she would insist, and thus the decision would be made. Catherine opened the door and smiled, happily and confidently, as if nothing had happened. She led him to a room where broad shafts of sunlight flooded the columns of books and papers stacked neatly on her desk. The room was clean, orderly, the pile of the rug still striped in bands left by a carpet-sweeper. Catherine wore a crisp organdy blouse with sleeves standing stiffly, cheerfully about her shoulders. Little fluffy needles glittered through her hair in the sunlight. He felt a brief wrench of disappointment that no menace met him in her house. A wrench of relief, also, and of disappointment. "'I'm ready, Peter,' she said. "'Get me my coat.' Did you tell your uncle? he asked. Oh, yes, I told him last night. He was still working when I got back. What did he say? Nothing. He just laughed and asked me what I wanted for a wedding present. But he laughed so much. Where is he? Didn't he want to meet me, at least? He had to go to his newspaper office. He said he'd have plenty of time to see more than enough of you. But he said it so nicely. Listen, Katie, I... There's one thing I wanted to tell you. He hesitated, not looking at her. His voice was flat. You see, it's like this. Lucius Heyer, Francone's partner, is very ill, and they don't expect him to live. Francone's been hinting quite openly that I'm to take Heyer's place. But Francone has the crazy idea that he wants me to marry his daughter. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know there's not a chance. But I can't tell him so. And I thought... I thought that if we waited... For just a few weeks, I'd be set with the firm, and then Francone could do nothing to me when I come and tell him that I'm married. But, of course, it's up to you. He looked at her, and his voice was eager. If you want to do it now, we'll go at once. But, Peter, she said calmly, serene and astonished, but, of course, we'll wait. He smiled in approval and relief, but he closed his eyes. Of course we'll wait, she said firmly. I didn't know this, and it's very important. There's really no reason to hurry at all. You're not afraid that Francone's daughter might get me? She laughed. Oh, Peter, 
I know you too well. But if you'd rather... No, it's much better. You see, to tell you the truth, I thought this morning that it would be better if we waited. But I didn't want to say anything if you had made up your mind. Since you'd rather wait, I'd much rather too, because you see we got word this morning that Uncle's invited to repeat the same course of lectures at a terribly important university on the West Coast this summer. I felt horrible about leaving him flat with the work unfinished. And then I thought also that perhaps we were being foolish. We're both so young. And Uncle Ellsworth laughed so much. You see, it's really wiser to wait a little. Yes. Well, that's fine. But, Katie, if you feel as you did last night... But I don't. I'm so ashamed of myself. I can't imagine whatever happened to me last night. I try to remember it, and I can't understand. You know how it is. You feel so silly afterward. Everything's so clear and simple the next day. Did I say a lot of awful nonsense last night? Well, forget it. You're a sensible little girl. We're both sensible. And we'll wait just a while. It won't be long. Yes, Peter. He said suddenly, fiercely, Insist on it now, Katie. And then he laughed stupidly, as if he had not been quite serious. She smiled gaily in answer. You see, she said, spreading her hands out. Well, he muttered. Well, all right, Katie, we'll wait. It's better, of course. I... I'll run along, then. I'll be late at the office. He felt he had to escape her room for the moment, for that day. I'll give you a ring. Let's have dinner together tomorrow. Yes, Peter. That will be nice. He went away relieved and desolate, cursing himself for the dull, persistent feeling that told him he had missed a chance which would never return, that something was closing in on them both, and they had surrendered. He cursed because he could not say what it was that they should have fought. He hurried on to his office, where he was being late for an appointment with Mrs. Moorhead. Catherine stood in the middle of the room after he had left, and wondered why she suddenly felt empty and cold, why she hadn't known until this moment that she had hoped he would force her to follow him. Then she shrugged and smiled reproachfully at herself, and went back to the work on her desk. Chapter 13 On a day in October, when the Heller house was nearing completion, a lanky young man in overalls stepped out of a small group that stood watching the house from the road and approached Rourke. "'You're the fellow who built the booby-hatch?' he asked, quite diffidently. "'If you mean this house, yes,' Rourke answered. "'Oh, I beg your pardon, sir. It's only that that's what they call the place around here. It's not what I'd call it. You see, I've got a building job.' Well, not exactly, but I'm going to build a filling station of my own about ten miles from here down on the post road. I'd like to talk to you. Later on a bench in front of the garage where he worked, Jimmy Gowan explained in detail. He added, And how I happen to think of you, Mr. Rourke, is that I like it, that funny house of yours. Can't say why, but I like it. It makes sense to me. And then again I figured everybody's gaping at it and talking about it. Well, that's no use to a house. But that'd be plenty smart for a business. Let them giggle, but let them talk about it. So I thought I'd get you to build it. And then they'll all say I'm crazy, but do you care? I don't. Jimmy Gowan had worked like a mule for fifteen years, saving money for a business of his own. People voiced indignant objections to his choice of architect. Jimmy uttered no word of explanation or self-defense. He said politely, Maybe so, folks, maybe so and proceeded to have Rourke build his station.
The station opened on a day in late December. It stood on the edge of the Boston Post Road, two small structures of glass and concrete forming a semicircle among the trees. The cylinder of the office and the long, low oval of the diner with the gasoline pumps as the colonnade of a forecourt between them. It was a study in circles. There were no angles and no straight lines. It looked like shapes caught in a flow, held still at the moment of being poured, at the precise moment when they formed a harmony that seemed too perfect to be intentional. It looked like a cluster of bubbles hanging low over the ground, not quite touching it, to be swept aside in an instant on a wind of speed. It looked gay, with the hard, bracing gaiety of efficiency, like a powerful airplane engine. Rourke stayed at the station on the day of its opening. He drank coffee in a clean white mug at the counter of the diner, and he watched the car stopping at the door. He left late at night. He looked back once, driving down the long, empty road. The lights of the station winked, flowing away from him. There it stood at the crossing of two roads, and cars would be streaming past it day and night, cars coming from cities in which there was no room for buildings such as this, going to cities in which there would be no buildings such as this. He turned his face to the road before him, and he kept his eyes off the mirror, which still held, glittering softly, dots of light that moved away far behind him. He drove back to months of idleness. He sat in his office each morning because he knew that he had to sit there, looking at a door that never opened, his fingers forgotten on a telephone that never rang. The ashtrays he emptied each day before leaving contained nothing but the stubs of his own cigarettes. "'What are you doing about it, Howard?' Austin Heller asked him at dinner one evening. "'Nothing. But you must. There's nothing I can do. You must learn how to handle people. I can't. Why? I don't know how. I was born without some one particular sense. It's something one acquires. I have no organ to acquire it with. I don't know whether it's something I lack or something extra I have that stops me. Besides, I don't like people who have to be handled. But you can't sit still and do nothing now. You've got to go after commissions. What can I tell people in order to get commissions? I can only show my work. If they don't hear that, they won't hear anything, I say. I'm nothing to them. But my work... My work is all we have in common, and I have no desire to tell them anything else. Then what are you going to do? You're not worried? No, I expected it. I'm waiting. For what? My kind of people. What kind is that? I don't know. Yes, I do. But I can't explain it. I've often wished I could. There must be some one principle to cover it. But I don't know what it is. Honesty? Yes. No, only partly. Guy Francon is an honest man. But it isn't that. Courage? Ralston Holcomb has courage, in his own manner. I don't know. I'm not that vague on other things. But I can tell my kind of people by their faces, by something in their faces. There will be thousands passing by your house and by the gas station. If out of those thousands one stops and sees it, that's all I need. Then you do need other people after all, don't you, Howard? Of course. What are you laughing at? I've always thought that you were the most antisocial animal I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I need people to give me work. I'm not building mausoleums. Do you suppose I should need them in some other way? In a closer, more personal way? 
You don't need anyone in a very personal way. No. You're not even boasting about it. Should I? You can't. You're too arrogant to boast. Is that what I am? Don't you know what you are? No. Not as far as you're seeing me, or anyone else. Heller sat silently, his wrist describing circles with a cigarette. Then Heller laughed and said, That was typical. What? That you didn't ask me to tell me what you are as I see you. Anybody else would have. I'm sorry. It wasn't indifference. You're one of the few friends I want to keep. I just didn't think of asking. I know you didn't. That's the point. You're a self-centered monster, Howard. The more monstrous because you're utterly innocent about it. That's true. You should show a little concern when you admit that. Why? You know there's a thing that stumps me. You're the coldest man I know, and I can't understand why, knowing that you're actually a fiend in your quiet sort of way. Why, I always feel when I see you that you're the most life-giving person I've ever met. What do you mean? I don't know. Just that. The weeks went by and Rourke walked to his office each day, sat at his desk for eight hours and read a great deal. At five o'clock he walked home. He had moved to a better room near the office. He spent little. He had enough money for a long time to come. On a morning in February, the telephone rang in his office. A brisk, emphatic feminine voice asked for an appointment with Mr. Rourke, the architect. That afternoon, a brisk, small, dark-skinned woman entered the office. She wore a mink coat and exotic earrings that tinkled when she moved her head. She moved her head a great deal in sharp little bird-like jerks. She was Mrs. Wayne Wilmot of Long Island, and she wished to build a country house. She had selected Mr. Rourke to build it, she explained, because he had designed the home of Austin Heller. She adored Austin Heller. He was, she stated, an oracle to all those pretending just the tiniest bit to the title of progressive intellectual, she thought. Don't you? And she followed Heller like a zealot. Yes, literally like a zealot. Mr. Rourke was very young, wasn't he? But she didn't mind that. She was very liberal and glad to help youth. She wanted a large house. She had two children. She believed in expressing their individuality. Don't you? And each had to have a separate nursery. She had to have a library. I read to distraction. A music room, a conservatory. We grow lilies of the valley. My friends tell me it's my flower. A den for her husband, who trusted her implicitly and let her plan the house. Because I'm so good at it. If I weren't a woman, I'm sure I'd be an architect. Servants' rooms and all that, and a three-car garage. After an hour and a half of details and explanations, she said, And, of course, as to the style of the house, it will be English Tudor. I adore English Tudor. He looked at her. He asked slowly, Have you seen Austin Heller's house? No, though I did want to see it, but how could I? I've never met Mr. Heller. I'm only his fan, just that, a plain ordinary fan. What is he like in person? You must tell me. I'm dying to hear it. No, I haven't seen his house. It's somewhere up in Maine, isn't it? Rourke took photographs out of the desk drawer and handed them to her. This, he said, is the Heller house. She looked at the photographs, her glance like water skimming off their glossy surfaces, and threw them down on the desk. Very interesting, she said. Most unusual, quite stunning. But of course that's not what I want. That kind of a house wouldn't express my personality. My friends tell me I have the Elizabethan personality. 
quietly, patiently. He tried to explain to her why she should not build a Tudor house. She interrupted him in the middle of a sentence. Look here, Mr. Rourke, you're not trying to teach me something, are you? I'm quite sure that I have good taste, and I know a great deal about architecture. I've taken a special course at the club. My friends tell me that I know more than many architects. I've quite made up my mind that I shall have an English Tudor house. I do not care to argue about it. You'll have to go to some other architect, Mrs. Wilmot. She stared at him incredulously. You mean you're refusing the commission? Yes. You don't want my commission? No. But why? I don't do this sort of thing. But I thought architects... Yes. Architects will build you anything you ask for. Any other architect in town will. But I gave you first chance. Will you do me a favor, Mrs. Wilmot? Will you tell me why you came to me if all you wanted was a Tudor house? Well, I certainly thought you'd appreciate the opportunity. And then I thought I could tell my friends that I had Austin Heller's architect. He tried to explain and to convince. He knew while he spoke that it was useless, because his words sounded as if they were hitting a vacuum. There was no such person as Mrs. Wayne Wilmot. There was only a shell containing the opinions of her friends, the picture postcards she had seen, the novels of country squires she had read. It was this that he had to address, this immateriality which could not hear him or answer, deaf and impersonal like a wad of cotton. I'm sorry, said Mrs. Wayne Wilmot, but I'm not accustomed to dealing with a person utterly incapable of reason. I'm quite sure I shall find plenty of bigger men who'll be glad to work for me. My husband was opposed to my idea of having you in the first place, and I'm sorry to see that he was right. Good day, Mr. Rourke. She walked out with dignity, but she slammed the door. He slipped the photographs back into the drawer of his desk. Mr. Robert L. Mundy, who came to Rourke's office in March, had been sent by Austin Heller. Mr. Mundy's voice and hair were gray as steel, but his eyes were blue, gentle, and wistful. He wanted to build a house in Connecticut, and he spoke of it tremulously, like a young bridegroom, and like a man groping for his last secret goal. He's not just a house, Mr. Rourke, he said with timid diffidence, as if he were speaking to a man older and more prominent than himself. It's like, like a symbol to me. It's what I've been waiting and working for all these years. It's so many years now. I must tell you this so you'll understand. I have a great deal of money now, more than I care to think about. I didn't always have it. Maybe it came too late, I don't know. Young people think that you forget what happens on the way when you get there, but you don't. Something stays. I'll always remember how I was a boy, in a little place down in Georgia, that was, and how I ran errands for the harness maker, and the kids laughed when carriages drove by and splashed mud all over my pants. That's how long ago I decided that someday I'd have a house of my own, the kind of a house that carriages stopped before. After that, no matter how hard it got to be at times, I'd always think of that house, and it helped. Afterward, there were years when I was afraid of it. I could have built it, but I was afraid. Well, now the time has come. Do you understand, Mr. Rourke? Austin said you'd be just the man who'd understand. Yes, said Rourke eagerly. I do. There was a place, said Mr. Mundy, down there near my hometown, the mansion of the whole county, the Randolph place, an old plantation house, as they don't build them any more. I used to deliver things there sometimes at the back door. That's the house I want, Mr. Rourke, just like it. But not back there in Georgia. I don't want to go back, right here near the city. I've bought the land. You must help me to have it landscaped, just like the Randolph place, 
We'll plant trees and shrubs, the kind they have in Georgia, the flowers and everything. We'll find a way to make them grow. I don't care how much it costs. Of course, we'll have electric lights and garages now, not carriages. But I want the electric lights made like candles. And I want the garages to look like the stables, everything just as it was. I have photographs of the Randolph place, and I've bought some of their old furniture. When Rourke began to speak, Mr. Mundy listened in polite astonishment. He did not seem to resent the words. They did not penetrate. Don't you see, Rourke was saying, it's a monument you want to build, but not to yourself, not to your life or your own achievement, to other people, to their supremacy over you. You're not challenging that supremacy. You're immortalizing it. You haven't thrown it off. You're putting it up forever. Will you be happy if you seal yourself for the rest of your life in that borrowed shape? Or if you strike free for once and build a new house, your own? You don't want the Randolph place. You want what it stood for. But what it stood for is what you fought all your life. Mr. Mundy listened blankly. And Rourke felt again a bewildered helplessness before unreality. There was no such person as Mr. Mundy. There were only the remnants, long dead, of the people who had inhabited the Randolph place. One could not plead with remnants or convince them. No, said Mr. Mundy at last. No, you may be right, but that's not what I want at all. I don't say you haven't got your reasons, and they sound like good reasons. But I like the Randolph place. Why? Just because I like it. Just because that's what I like. When Rourke told him that he would have to select another architect, Mr. Mundy said unexpectedly, But I like you. Why can't you build it for me? What difference would it make to you? Rourke did not explain. Later, Austin Heller said to him, I expected it. I was afraid you'd turn him down. I'm not blaming you, Howard. Only he's so rich. It could have helped you so much. And after all, you've got to live. Not that way, said Rourke. In April, Mr. Nathaniel Jantz, of the Jantz Stewart Real Estate Company, called Rourke to his office. Mr. Jantz was frank and blunt. He stated that his company was planning the erection of a small office building, thirty stories on Lower Broadway, and that he was not sold on Rourke as the architect. In fact, he was more or less opposed to him. But his friend Austin Heller had insisted that he should meet Rourke and talk to him about it. Mr. Jantz did not think very much of Rourke's stuff, but Heller had simply bullied him, and he would listen to Rourke before deciding on anyone. And what did Rourke have to say on the subject? Rourke had a great deal to say. He said it calmly, and this was difficult at first because he wanted that building, because what he felt was the desire to wrench that building out of Mr. Jantz at the point of a gun if he'd had one. But after a few minutes it became simple and easy. The thought of the gun vanished, and even his desire for the building. It was not a commission to get, and he was not there to get it. He was only speaking of buildings. Mr. Jantz, when you buy an automobile, you don't want it to have rose garlands about the windows, a lion on each fender, and an angel sitting on the roof. Why don't you? That would be silly, stated Mr. Jantz. Why would it be silly? Now I think it would be beautiful. Besides, Louis the Fourteenth had a carriage like that, and what was good enough for Louis is good enough for us. We shouldn't go in for rash innovations, and we shouldn't break with tradition. Now, you know damn well you don't believe anything of the sort. I know I don't. But that's what you believe, isn't it? Now, take a human body. 
Why wouldn't you like to see a human body with a curling tail, with a crest of ostrich feathers at the end, and with ears shaped like acanthus leaves? It would be ornamental, you know, instead of the stark, bare ugliness we have now. Well, why don't you like the idea? Because it would be useless and pointless. Because the beauty of the human body is that it hasn't a single muscle which doesn't serve its purpose, that there's not a line wasted, that every detail of it fits one idea, the idea of a man. And the life of a man. Will you tell me why, when it comes to a building, you don't want it to look as if it had any sense or purpose? You want to choke it with trimmings? You want to sacrifice its purpose to its envelope, not knowing even why you want that kind of an envelope? You want it to look like a hybrid beast produced by crossing the bastards of ten different species until you get a creature without guts, without heart or brain, a creature all pelt, tail, claws, and feathers. Why? You must tell me. Because I've never been able to understand it. Well," said Mr. Jantz, "I've never thought of it that way." He added, without great conviction, "But we want our building to have dignity, you know, and beauty—what they call real beauty. What who calls what beauty? Well, tell me, Mr. Jantz, do you really think that Greek columns and fruit baskets are beautiful on a modern steel office building?" I don't know that I've ever thought anything about why a building was beautiful one way or another," Mr. Jantz confessed. "But I guess that's what the public wants. Why do you suppose they want it? I don't know. Then why should you care what they want? You've got to consider the public. Don't you know that most people take most things because that's what's given them, and they have no opinion whatever? Do you wish to be guided by what they expect you to think they think, or by your own judgment?" You can't force it down their throats. You don't have to. You must only be patient, because on your side you have reason. Oh, I know it's something no one really wants to have on his side, and against you, you have just a vague, fat, blind inertia. Why do you think that I don't want reason on my side? It's not you, Mister Jantz. It's the way most people feel. They have to take a chance. Everything they do is taking a chance. But they feel so much safer when they take it on something they know to be ugly, vain, and stupid. That's true, you know," said Mr. Jantz. At the conclusion of the interview, Mr. Jantz said thoughtfully, "I can't say that it doesn't make sense, Mr. Rourke. Let me think it over. You'll hear from me shortly." Mr. Jantz called him a week later. It's the board of directors that will have to decide. Are you willing to try, Rourke? Draw up the plans and some preliminary sketches. I'll submit them to the board. I can't promise anything, but I'm for you, and I'll fight them on it. Rourke worked on the plans for two weeks of days and nights. The plans were submitted. Then he was called before the board of directors of the Jantz Stewart Real Estate Company. He stood at the side of a long table and he spoke, his eyes moving slowly from face to face. He tried not to look down at the table, but on the lower rim of his vision there remained the white spot of his drawings spread before the twelve men. He was asked a great many questions. Mister Jans jumped up at times to answer instead, to pound the table with his fist, to snarl, "Don't you see? Isn't it clear? What of it, Mister Grant? What if no one has ever built anything like it? Gothic, Mister Hubbard? Why must we have Gothic? I've a jolly good mind to resign if you turn this down." 
Rourke spoke quietly. He was the only man in the room who felt certain of his own words. He felt also that he had no hope. The twelve faces before him had a variety of countenances, but there was something, neither color nor feature, upon all of them as a common denominator, something that dissolved their expressions, so that they were not faces any longer, but only empty ovals of flesh. He was addressing everyone. He was addressing no one. He felt no answer, not even the echo of his own words striking against the membrane of an eardrum. His words were falling down a well, hitting stone salients on their way, and each salient refused to stop them, threw them farther, tossed them from one another, sent them to seek a bottom that did not exist. He was told that he would be informed of the board's decision. He knew that decision in advance. When he received the letter, he read it without feeling. The letter was from Mr. Jans, and it began, Dear Mr. Rourke, I am sorry to inform you that our board of directors find themselves unable to grant you the commission for... There was a plea in the letter's brutal, offensive formality. The plea of a man who could not face him. John Fargo had started in life as a pushcart peddler. At fifty, he owned a modest fortune and a prosperous department store on Lower Sixth Avenue. For years he had fought successfully against a larger store across the street, one of many inherited by a numerous family. In the fall of last year, the family had moved that particular branch to new quarters farther uptown. They were convinced that the center of the city's retail business was shifting north, and they had decided to hasten the downfall of their former neighborhood by leaving their old store vacant, a grim reminder and embarrassment to their competitor across the street. John Fargo had answered by announcing that he would build a new store of his own on the very same spot, next door to his old one, a store newer and smarter than any the city had seen. He would, he declared, keep the prestige of his old neighborhood. When he called Rourke to his office, he did not say that he would have to decide later or think things over. He said, You're the architect. He sat, his feet on his desk, smoking a pipe, snapping out words and puffs of smoke together. I'll tell you what space I need and how much I want to spend. If you need more, say so. The rest is up to you. I don't know much about buildings but I know a man who knows when I see him. Go ahead. Fargo had chosen Rourke because Fargo had driven one day past Gowan's service station and stopped and gone in and asked a few questions. After that, he bribed Heller's cook to show him through the house in Heller's absence. Fargo needed no further argument. Late in May, when the drafting table in Rourke's office was buried deep in sketches for the Fargo store, he received another commission. Mr. Whitford Sanborn, the client, owned an office building that had been built for him many years ago by Henry Cameron. When Mr. Sanborn decided that he needed a new country residence, he rejected his wife's suggestions of other architects. He wrote to Henry Cameron. Cameron wrote a ten-page letter in answer. The first three lines of the letter stated that he had retired from practice. The rest of it was about Howard Rourke. Rourke never learned what had been said in that letter. Sanborn would not show it to him, and Cameron would not tell him. But Sanborn signed him to build the country residence, in spite of Mrs. Sanborn's violent objections. Mrs. Sanborn was the president of many charity organizations, and this had given her an addiction to autocracy such as no other avocation could develop. Mrs. Sanborn wished a French chateau built upon their new estate on the Hudson, she wished it to look stately and ancient, 
as if it had always belonged to the family. Of course, she admitted, people would know that it hadn't, but it would appear as if it had. Mr. Sanborn signed the contract after Rourke had explained to him in detail the kind of a house he was to expect. Mr. Sanborn had agreed to it readily, had not wished even to wait for sketches. But of course, Fanny, Mr. Sanborn said wearily, I want a modern house. I told you that long ago. That's what Cameron would have designed. What in heaven's name does Cameron mean now? she asked. I don't know, Fanny. I know only that there's no building in New York like the one he did for me. The arguments continued for many long evenings in the dark, cluttered, polished mahogany splendor of the Sanborn's Victorian drawing room. Mr. Sanborn wavered. Rourke asked, his arms sweeping out at the room around them, Is this what you want? Well, if you're going to be impertinent, Mrs. Sanborn began, but Mr. Sanborn exploded. Christ, Fanny, he's right. That's just what I don't want. That's just what I'm sick of. Rourke saw no one until the sketches were ready. The house, of plain field stone with great windows and many terraces, stood in the gardens over the river, as spacious as the spread of water, as open as the gardens. And one had to follow its lines attentively to find the exact steps by which it was tied to the sweep of the gardens. So gradual was the rise of the terraces, the approach to and the full reality of the walls. It seemed only that the trees flowed into the house and through it. It seemed that the house was not a barrier against sunlight, but a bowl to gather it, to concentrate it into brighter radiance than that of the air outside. Mr. Sanborn was first to see the sketches. He studied them, and then he said, I... I don't know quite how to say it, Mr. Rourke. It's great. Cameron was right about you. After others had seen the sketches, Mr. Sanborn was not certain of this any longer. Mrs. Sanborn said that the house was awful, and the long evening arguments were resumed. Now why, why can't we add turrets there on the corners? Mrs. Sanborn asked. There's plenty of room on those flat roofs. When she had been talked out of the turrets, she inquired, Why can't we have mullioned windows? What difference would that make? God knows the windows are large enough. Though why they have to be so large, I fail to see it gives one no privacy at all. But I'm willing to accept your windows, Mr. Rourke, if you're so stubborn about it. But why can't you put mullions on the panes? It will soften things, and it gives a regal air, you know, a feudal sort of mood. The friends and relatives, to whom Mrs. Sanborn hurried with the sketches, did not like the house at all. Mrs. Walling called it preposterous, and Mrs. Hooper, crude. Mr. Melander said he wouldn't have it as a present. Mrs. Appleby stated that it looked like a shoe factory. Miss Davitt glanced at the sketches and said with approval, Oh, how very artistic, my dear. Who designed it? Rourke? Rourke? Never heard of him. Well, frankly, Fanny, it looks like something phony. The two children of the family were divided on the question. June Sanborn, aged nineteen, had always thought that all architects were romantic, and she had been delighted to learn that they would have a very young architect. But she did not like Rourke's appearance and his indifference to her hints. So she declared that the house was hideous, and she, for one, would refuse to live in it. Richard Sanborn, aged twenty-four, who had been a brilliant student in college and was now slowly drinking himself to death, startled his family by emerging from his usual lethargy, 
and declaring that the house was magnificent. No one could tell whether it was aesthetic appreciation, or hatred of his mother, or both. Whitford Sanborn swayed with every new current. He would mutter, Well, now, not mullions, of course, that's utter rubbish, but couldn't you give her a cornice, Mr. Rourke, to keep peace in the family? Just a kind of crenellated cornice? It wouldn't spoil anything. Or would it? The arguments ended when Rourke declared that he would not build the house unless Mr. Sanborn approved the sketches just as they were and signed his approval on every sheet of the drawings. Mr. Sanborn signed. Mrs. Sanborn was pleased to learn shortly afterward that no reputable contractor would undertake the erection of the house. You see, she started triumphantly. Mr. Sanborn refused to see. He found an obscure firm that accepted the commission grudgingly and as a special favor to him. Mrs. Sanborn learned that she had an ally in the contractor, and she broke social precedent to the extent of inviting him for tea. She had long since lost all coherent ideas about the house. She merely hated Rourke. Her contractor hated all architects, on principle. The construction of the Sanborn house proceeded through the months of summer and fall, each day bringing new battles. But of course, Mr. Rourke, I told you I wanted three closets in my bedroom. I remember distinctly it was on a Friday, and we were sitting in the drawing room, and Mr. Sanborn was sitting in the big chair by the window, and I was... What about the plans? What plans? How do you expect me to understand plans? And Rosalie says she can't possibly climb a circular stairway, Mr. Rourke. What are we going to do? Select our guests to fit your house? Mr. Hulbert says that kind of a ceiling won't hold. Oh, yes, Mr. Hulbert knows a lot about architecture. He's spent two summers in Venice. June, poor darling, says her room will be dark as a cellar. Well, that's the way she feels, Mr. Rourke. Even if it isn't dark, but if it makes her feel dark, it's the same thing. Rourke stayed up nights, redrafting the plans for the alterations which he could not avoid. It meant days of tearing down floors, stairways, partitions already erected. It meant extras piling up on the contractor's budget. The contractor shrugged and said, I told you so. That's what always happens when you get one of those fancy architects. You wait and see what this thing will cost you before it gets through. Then, as the house took shape, it was Rourke who found that he wanted to make a change. The eastern wing had never quite satisfied him. Watching it rise, he saw the mistake he had made and the way to correct it. He knew it would bring the house into a more logical whole. He was making his first steps in building, and they were his first experiments. He could admit it openly. But Mr. Sanborn refused to allow the change. It was his turn. Rourke pleaded with him. Once the picture of that new wing had become clear in Rourke's mind, he could not bear to look at the house as it stood. It's not that I disagree with you, Mr. Sanborn said coldly. In fact, I do think you're right but we cannot afford it. Sorry. It will cost you less than the senseless changes Mrs. Sanborn has forced me to make. Don't bring that up again. Mr. Sanborn, Rourke asked slowly, will you sign a paper that you authorize this change, provided it costs you nothing? Certainly, if you can conjure up a miracle to work that. He signed. The eastern wing was rebuilt. Rourke paid for it himself. It cost him more than the fee he received. Mr. Sanborn hesitated. He wanted to repay it. Mrs. Sanborn stopped him. 
It's just a low trick, she said. Just a form of high pressure. He's blackmailing you on your better feelings. He expects you to pay. Wait and see. He'll ask for it. Don't let him get away with that. Rourke did not ask for it. Mr. Sanborn never paid him. When the house was completed, Mrs. Sanborn refused to live in it. Mr. Sanborn looked at it wistfully, too tired to admit that he loved it, that he had always wanted a home just like it. He surrendered. The house was not furnished. Mrs. Sanborn took herself, her husband, and her daughter off to Florida for the winter, where she said, "We have a house that's a decent Spanish, thank God, because we bought it ready-made. This is what happens when you venture to build for yourself with some half-baked idiot of an architect." Her son, to everybody's amazement, exhibited a sudden burst of savage willpower. He refused to go to Florida. He liked the new house. He would live nowhere else. So three of the rooms were furnished for him. The family left, and he moved alone into the house on the Hudson. At night, one could see from the river a single rectangle of yellow, small and lost, among the windows of the huge dead house. The bulletin of the Architects Guild of America carried a small item. A curious incident, which would be amusing if it were not deplorable, is reported to us about a home recently built by Mr. Whitford Sanborn, noted industrialist, designed by one Howard Rourke and erected at a cost of well over one hundred thousand dollars. This house was found by the family to be uninhabitable. It stands now abandoned, as an eloquent witness to professional incompetence. Chapter Fourteen. Lucius and Hire stubbornly refused to die. He had recovered from the stroke and returned to his office, ignoring the objections of his doctor and the solicitous protests of Guy Francon. Francon offered to buy him out. Hire refused. His pale, watering eyes staring obstinately at nothing at all. He came to his office every two or three days. He read the copies of correspondence left in his letter basket according to custom. He sat at his desk and drew flowers on a clean pad. Then he went home. He walked, dragging his feet slowly. He held his elbows pressed to his sides and his forearms thrust forward, with the fingers half closed, like claws. The fingers shook. He could not use his left hand at all. He would not retire. He liked to see his name on the firm's stationery. He wondered dimly why he was no longer introduced to prominent clients. Why he never saw the sketches of their new buildings until they were half erected? If he mentioned this, Francon protested, "But Lucius, I couldn't think of bothering you in your condition. Any other man would have retired long ago." Francon puzzled him mildly. Peter Keating baffled him. Keating barely bothered to greet him when they met, and then, as an afterthought, Keating walked off in the middle of a sentence addressed to him. When Hire issued some minor order to one of the draftsmen, it was not carried out, and the draftsman informed him that the order had been countermanded by Mr. Keating. Hire could not understand it. He always remembered Keating as the diffident boy who had talked to him so nicely about old porcelain. He excused Keating at first, then he tried to mollify him humbly and clumsily. Then he conceived an unreasoning fear of Keating. He complained to Francon. He said petulantly, assuming the tone of an authority he could never have exercised, "That boy of yours, Key, that Keating fellow, he's getting to be impossible. He's rude to me. You ought to get rid of him." Now you see, Lucius," Francon answered dryly, 
Why I say that you should retire? You're overstraining your nerves, and you're beginning to imagine things. Then came the competition for the Cosmo Slotnick building. Cosmo Slotnick Pictures of Hollywood, California, had decided to erect a stupendous home office in New York, a skyscraper to house a motion picture theater and 40 floors of offices. A worldwide competition for the selection of the architect had been announced a year in advance. It was stated that Cosmo Slotnick were not merely the leaders in the art of the motion picture, but embraced all the arts, since all contributed to the creation of the films, and architecture being a lofty, though neglected branch of aesthetics, Cosmo Slotnick were ready to put it on the map. With the latest news of the casting of I'll Take a Sailor and the shooting of Wives for Sale, came stories about the Parthenon and the Pantheon. Miss Sally O'Dawn was photographed on the steps of the Rans Cathedral in a bathing suit, and Mr. Pratt, Pardoner Purcell, gave an interview stating that he had always dreamed of being a master builder, if he hadn't been a movie actor. Ralston Holcomb, Guy Francone, and Gordon L. Prescott were quoted on the future of American architecture in an article written by Miss Dimples Williams, and an imaginary interview quoted what Sir Christopher Wren would have said about the motion picture. In the Sunday supplements, there were photographs of Cosmo Slotnick starlets in shorts and sweaters, holding T-squares and slide rules, standing before drawing boards that bore the legend, Cosmo Slotnick Building, over a huge question mark. The competition was open to all architects of all countries. The building was to rise on Broadway and to cost ten million dollars. It was to symbolize the genius of modern technology and the spirit of the American people. It was announced in advance as the most beautiful building in the world. The jury of award consisted of Mr. Shoup, representing Cosmo, Mr. Slotnick, representing Slotnick, Professor Peterkin of the Stanton Institute of Technology, the mayor of the city of New York, Ralston Holcomb, president of the AGA, and Ellsworth M. Toohey. Go to it, Peter, Francone told Keating enthusiastically. Do your best. Give me all you've got. This is your great chance. You'll be known the world over if you win. And here's what we'll do. We'll put your name on our entry along with the firm's. If we win, you'll get one-fifth of the prize. The grand prize is $60,000, you know. Hire will object, said Keating cautiously. Let him object. That's why I'm doing it. He might get it through his head. What's the decent thing for him to do? And I... Well, you know how I feel, Peter. I think of you as my partner already. I owe it to you. You've earned it. This might be your key to it. Keating redrew his project five times. He hated it. He hated every girder of that building before it was born. He worked, his hand trembling. He did not think of the drawing under his hand. He thought of all the other contestants, of the man who might win and be proclaimed publicly as his superior. He wondered what that other one would do, how the other would solve the problem and surpass him. He had to beat that man. Nothing else mattered. There was no Peter Keating. There was only a suction chamber, like the kind of tropical plant he'd heard about, a plant that drew an insect into its vacuum and sucked it dry, and thus acquired its own substance. He felt nothing but immense uncertainty when his sketches were ready, and the delicate perspective of a white marble edifice lay neatly finished before him. It looked like a Renaissance palace made of rubber, and stretched to the height of forty stories. He had chosen the style of the Renaissance because he knew the unwritten law that all architectural juries liked columns, and because he remembered Ralston Holcomb on the jury. He had borrowed from all of Holcomb's favorite Italian palaces. It looked good. 
It might be good. He was not sure. He had no one to ask. He heard these words in his own mind, and he felt a wave of blind fury. He felt it before he knew the reason, but he knew the reason almost in the same instant. There was someone whom he could ask. He did not want to think of that name. He would not go to him. The anger rose to his face, and he felt the hot, tight patches under his eyes. He knew that he would go. He pushed the thought out of his mind. He was not going anywhere. When the time came, he slipped his drawings into a folder and went to Rourke's office. He found Rourke alone, sitting at the desk in the large room that bore no signs of activity. Hello, Howard, he said brightly. How are you? I'm not interrupting anything, am I? Hello, Peter, said Rourke. You aren't. Not awfully busy, are you? No. Mind if I sit down for a few minutes? Sit down. Well, Howard, you've been doing great work. I've seen the Fargo store. It's splendid. My congratulations. Thank you. You've been forging straight ahead, haven't you? Had three commissions already? Four. Oh, yes, of course, four. Pretty good. I hear you've been having a little trouble with the Sanborns. I have. Well, it's not all smooth sailing, not all of it, you know. No new commissions since? Nothing? No, nothing. Well, it will come. I've always said that architects don't have to cut one another's throat. There's plenty of work for all of us. We must develop a spirit of professional unity and cooperation. For instance, take that competition. Have you sent your entry in already? What competition? Why, the competition. The Cosmoslotnik competition. I'm not sending any entry. You're... not? Not at all? No. Why? I don't enter competitions. Why, for heaven's sake? Come on, Peter. You didn't come here to discuss that. As a matter of fact, I did think I'd show you my own entry. You understand I'm not asking you to help me. I just want your reaction. Just a general opinion. He hastened to open the folder. Rourke studied the sketches. Keating snapped. Well, is it all right? No, it's rotten. And you know it. Then, for hours, while Keating watched and the sky darkened and lights flared up in the windows of the city, Rourke talked, explained, slashed lines through the plans, untangled the labyrinth of the theater's exits, cut windows, unraveled halls, smashed useless arches, straightened stairways. Keating stammered once, Jesus, Howard, why don't you enter the competition if you can do it like this? Rourke answered, Because I can't. I couldn't if I tried. I dry up. I go blank. I can't give them what they want. But I can straighten someone else's damn mess when I see it. It was morning when he pushed the plans aside. Keating whispered, And the elevation? Oh, to hell with your elevation. I don't want to look at your damn Renaissance elevations. But he looked. He could not prevent his hand from cutting lines across the perspective. All right, damn you. Give them good Renaissance, if you must, and if there is such a thing. Only I can't do that for you. Figure it out yourself. Something like this. Simpler, Peter, simpler, more direct, as honest as you can make of a dishonest thing. Now go home and try to work out something on this order. Keating went home. He copied Rourke's plans. He worked out Rourke's hasty sketch of the elevation into a neat, finished perspective. Then the drawings were mailed, properly addressed, to The Most Beautiful Building in the World Competition, Cosmo Slotnick Pictures Incorporated, New York City. 
The envelope accompanying the entry contained the names Francon and Hire, Architects, Peter Keating, Associated Designer. Through the months of that winter, Rourke found no other chances, no offers, no prospects of commissions. He sat at his desk and forgot at times to turn on the lights in the early dusk. It was as if the heavy immobility of all the hours that had flowed through the office, of its door, of its air, were beginning to seep into his muscles. He would rise and fling a book at the wall to feel his arm move, to hear the burst of sound. He smiled, amused, picked up the book and laid it neatly back on the desk. He turned on the desk lamp. Then he stopped before he had withdrawn his hands from the cone of light under the lamp, and he looked at his hands. He spread his fingers out slowly. Then he remembered what Cameron had said to him long ago. He jerked his hands away. He reached for his coat, turned the lights off, locked the door, and went home. As spring approached, he knew that his money would not last much longer. He paid the rent on his office promptly on the first of each month. He wanted the feeling of thirty days ahead, during which he would still own the office. He entered it calmly each morning. He found only that he did not want to look at the calendar when it began to grow dark, and he knew that another day of the thirty had gone. When he noticed this, he made himself look at the calendar. It was a race he was running now, a race between his rent money and... He did not know the name of the other contestant. Perhaps it was every man whom he passed on the street. When he went up to his office, the elevator operators looked at him in a queer, lazy, curious sort of way. When he spoke, they answered, not insolently, but in an indifferent drawl that seemed to say it would become insolent in a moment. They did not know what he was doing or why. They knew only that he was a man to whom no clients ever came. He attended, because Austin Heller asked him to attend, the few parties Heller gave occasionally. He was asked by guests, Oh, you're an architect. You'll forgive me, I haven't kept up with architecture. What have you built? When he answered, he heard them say, Oh, yes, indeed. And he saw the conscious politeness of their manner tell him that he was an architect by presumption. They had never seen his buildings. They did not know whether his buildings were good or worthless. They knew only that they had never heard of these buildings. It was a war in which he was invited to fight nothing, yet he was pushed forward to fight. He had to fight. He had no choice and no adversary. He passed by buildings under construction. He stopped to look at the steel cages. He felt at times as if the beams and girders were shaping themselves, not into a house, but into a barricade to stop him. And the few steps on the sidewalk that separated him from the wooden fence enclosing the construction were the steps he would never be able to take. It was pain, but it was a blunted, unpenetrating pain. It's true, he would tell himself. It's not, his body would answer, the strange, untouchable healthiness of his body. The Fargo store had opened, but one building could not save a neighborhood. Fargo's competitors had been right. The tide had turned, was flowing uptown. His customers were deserting him. Remarks were made openly on the decline of John Fargo, who had topped his poor business judgment by an investment in a preposterous kind of a building, which proved it was stated that the public would not accept these architectural innovations. It was not stated that the store was the cleanest and brightest in the city, that the skill of its plan made its operation easier than had ever been possible, that the neighborhood had been doomed before its erection. The building took the blame.
Athelstan Beasley, the wit of the architectural profession, the court jester of the AGA, who never seemed to be building anything, but organized all the charity balls, wrote in his column entitled Quips and Quirks in the AGA Bulletin. Well, lads and lassies, here's a fairy tale with a moral. Seems there was, once upon a time, a little boy with hair the color of a Halloween pumpkin, who thought that he was better than all you common boys and girls. So to prove it, he up and built a house, which is a very nice house, except that nobody can live in it, and a store, which is a very lovely store, except that it's going bankrupt. He also erected a very eminent structure, to wit, a dog cart on a mud road. This last is reported to be doing very well indeed, which perhaps is the right field of endeavor for that little boy. At the end of March, Rourke read in the papers about Roger Enright. Roger Enright possessed millions, an oil concern, and no sense of restraint. This made his name appear in the papers frequently. He aroused a half-admiring, half-derisive awe by the incoherent variety of his sudden ventures. The latest was a project for a new type of residential development, an apartment building, with each unit complete and isolated, like an expensive private home. It was to be known as the Enright House. Enright had declared that he did not want it to look like anything anywhere else. He had approached and rejected several of the best architects in town. Rourke felt as if this newspaper item were a personal invitation, the kind of chance created expressly for him. For the first time, he attempted to go after a commission. He requested an interview with Roger Enright. He got an interview with the secretary. The secretary, a young man who looked bored, asked him several questions about his experience. He asked them slowly, as if it required an effort to decide just what it would be appropriate to ask under the circumstances, since the answers would make no difference whatever. He glanced at some photographs of Rourke's buildings and declared that Mr. Enright would not be interested. In the first week of April, when Rourke had paid his last rental for one more month at the office, he was asked to submit drawings for the new building of the Manhattan Bank Company. He was asked by Mr. Widler, a member of the board of directors who was a friend of young Richard Sanborn. Widler told him, I've had a stiff fight, Mr. Rourke, but I think I've won. I've taken them personally through the Sanborn house, and Dick and I explained a few things. However, the board must see the drawings before they make a decision, so it's not quite certain as yet. I must tell you frankly, but it's almost certain. They've turned down two other architects. They're very much interested in you. Go ahead. Good luck. Henry Cameron had had a relapse and the doctor warned his sister that no recovery could be expected. She did not believe it. She felt a new hope, because she saw that Cameron, lying still in bed, looking serene and almost happy, a word she had never found it possible to associate with her brother. But she was frightened one evening, when he said suddenly, Call Howard. Ask him to come here. In the three years since his retirement, he had never called for Rourke. He had merely waited for Rourke's visits. Rourke arrived within an hour. He sat by the side of Cameron's bed, and Cameron talked to him as usual. He did not mention the special invitation, and did not explain. The night was warm, and the window of Cameron's bedroom stood open to the dark garden. When he noticed, in a pause between sentences, the silence of the trees outside, the unmoving silence of late hours, Cameron called his sister and said, Fix the couch in the living room for Howard. He's staying here. Rourke looked at him and understood. Rourke inclined his head in agreement. 
He could acknowledge what Cameron had just declared to him, only by a quiet glance as solemn as Cameron's. Rourke remained at the house for three days. No reference was made to his staying there, nor to how long he would have to stay. His presence was accepted as a natural fact requiring no comment. Miss Cameron understood, and knew that she must say nothing. She moved about silently, with the meek courage of resignation. Cameron did not want Rourke's continuous presence in his room. He would say, Go out, take a walk through the garden, Howard. It's beautiful. The grass is coming up. He would lie in bed and watch, with contentment through the open window, Rourke's figure moving among the bare trees that stood against a pale blue sky. He asked only that Rourke eat his meals with him. Miss Cameron would put a tray on Cameron's knees and serve Rourke's meal on a small table by the bed. Cameron seemed to take pleasure in what he had never had nor sought, a sense of warmth in performing a daily routine, the sense of family. On the evening of the third day, Cameron lay back on his pillow, talking as usual, but the words came slowly, and he did not move his head. Rourke listened, and concentrated on not showing that he knew what went on in the terrible pauses between Cameron's words. The words sounded natural, and the strain they cost was to remain Cameron's last secret, as he wished. Cameron spoke about the future of building materials. Watch the light metals industry, Howard. In a few years, you'll see them do some astounding things. Watch the plastics. There's a whole new era coming from that. You'll find new tools, new means, new forms. You'll have to show the damn fools what wealth the human brain has made for them, what possibilities. Last week I read about a new kind of composition, tile, and I've thought of a way to use it where nothing else would do. Take, for instance, a small house, about $5,000. After a while, he stopped and remained silent, his eyes closed. Then Rourke heard him whisper suddenly, Gail Wynand. Rourke leaned closer to him, bewildered. I don't hate anybody anymore, only Gail Wynand. No, I've never laid eyes on him, but he represents... Everything that's wrong with the world. The triumph of overbearing vulgarity. It's Gail Wynand that you'll have to fight, Howard. Then he did not speak for a long time. When he opened his eyes again, he smiled. He said, I know what you're going through at your office just now. Rourke had never spoken to him of that. No. Don't deny, and don't say anything. I know, but it's all right. Don't be afraid. Do you remember the day when I tried to fire you? Forget what I said to you then. It was not the whole story. This is. Don't be afraid. It was worth it. His voice failed and he could not use it any longer. But the faculty of sight remained untouched, and he could lie silently and look at Rourke without effort. He died half an hour later. Keating saw Catherine often. He had not announced their engagement, but his mother knew, and it was not a precious secret of his own any longer. 
Catherine thought at times that he had dropped the sense of significance in their meetings. She was spared the loneliness of waiting for him, but she had lost the reassurance of his inevitable returns. Keating had told her, Let's wait for the results of that movie competition, Katie. It won't be long. They'll announce the decision in May. If I win, I'll be set for life. Then we'll be married. And that's when I'll meet your uncle. And he'll want to meet me. And I've got to win. I know you'll win. Because old hire won't last another month. The doctor told us that we can expect a second stroke at any time, and that will be that. If it doesn't get him to the graveyard, it'll certainly get him out of the office. Oh, Peter... I don't like to hear you talk like that. You mustn't be so... so terribly selfish. I'm sorry, dear. Well, yes, I guess I'm selfish. Everybody is. He spent more time with Dominique. Dominique watched him complacently, as if he presented no further problem to her. She seemed to find him suitable as an inconsequential companion for an occasional inconsequential evening. He thought that she liked him, he knew that this was not an encouraging sign. He forgot at times that she was Francone's daughter. He forgot all the reasons that prompted him to want her. He felt no need to be prompted. He wanted her. He needed no reasons now but the excitement of her presence. Yet he felt helpless before her. He refused to accept the thought that a woman could remain indifferent to him. But he was not certain even of her indifference. He waited and tried to guess her moods, to respond as he supposed she wished him to respond. He received no answer. On a spring night, they attended a ball together. They danced, and he drew her close. He stressed the touch of his fingers on her body. He knew that she noticed and understood. She did not withdraw. She looked at him with an unmoving glance that was almost expectation. When they were leaving, he held her wrap and let his fingers rest on her shoulders. She did not move or draw the wrap closed. She waited. She let him lift his hands. Then they walked together down to the cab. She sat silently in a corner of the cab. She had never before considered his presence important enough to require silence. She sat, her legs crossed, her wrap gathered tightly, her fingertips beating in slow rotation against her knee. He closed his hand softly about her forearm. She did not resist. She did not answer. Only her fingers stopped beating. His lips touched her hair. It was not a kiss. He merely let his lips rest against her hair for a long time. When the cab stopped, he whispered, Dominique, let me come up just for a moment. Yes, she answered. The word was flat, impersonal, with no sound of invitation. But she had never allowed it before. He followed her his heart pounding. There was one fragment of a second as she entered her apartment when she stopped waiting. He stared at her helplessly, bewildered, too happy. He noticed the pause only when she was moving again, walking away from him into the drawing room. She sat down, and her hands fell limply one at each side, her arms away from her body, leaving her unprotected. Her eyes were half-closed, rectangular, empty. Dominique, he whispered. Dominique, how lovely you are. Then he was beside her, whispering incoherently, Dominique, Dominique, I love you. Don't laugh at me, please don't laugh. My whole life, anything you wish, don't you know how beautiful you are? Dominique, I love you. 
He stopped with his arms around her and his face over hers to catch some hint of response or resistance. He saw nothing. He jerked her violently against him and kissed her lips. His arms fell open. He let her body fall back against the seat, and he stared at her, aghast. It had not been a kiss. He had not held a woman in his arms. What he had held and kissed had not been alive. Her lips had not moved in answer against his. Her arms had not moved to embrace him. It was not revulsion. He could have understood revulsion. It was as if he could hold her forever or drop her, kiss her again or go further to satisfy his desire. And her body would not know it, would not notice it. She was looking at him, past him. She saw a cigarette stub that had fallen off a tray on a table beside her. She moved her hand and slipped the cigarette back into the tray. Dominique, he whispered stupidly. Didn't you want me to kiss you? Yes. She was not laughing at him. She was answering simply and helplessly. Haven't you ever been kissed before? Yes, many times. Do you always act like that? Always, just like that. Why did you want me to kiss you? I wanted to try it. You're not human, Dominique. She lifted her head, she got up, and the sharp precision of the movement was her own again. He knew he would hear no simple confessing helplessness in her voice. He knew the intimacy was ended, even though her words, when she spoke, were more intimate and revealing than anything she had said. But she spoke as if she did not care what she revealed or to whom. I suppose I'm one of those freaks you hear about, an utterly frigid woman. I'm sorry, Peter. You see, you have no rivals, but that includes you also. A disappointment, darling? You... you'll outgrow it. Someday. I'm really not so young, Peter. Twenty-five. It must be an interesting experience to sleep with a man. I've wanted to want it. I should think it would be exciting to become a dissolute woman. I am, you know, in everything but in fact. Peter... You look as if you were going to blush in a moment, and that's very amusing. Dominique, haven't you ever been in love at all? Not even a little? I haven't. I really wanted to fall in love with you. I thought it would be convenient. I'd have no trouble with you at all. But you see, I can't feel anything. I can't feel any difference, whether it's you or Alva Scarrett or Lucius Hire. He got up. He did not want to look at her. He walked to a window and stood, staring out, his hands clasped behind his back. He had forgotten his desire and her beauty. But he remembered now that she was Francone's daughter. Dominique, will you marry me? He knew he had to say it now. If he let himself think of her, he would never say it. What he felt for her did not matter any longer. He could not let it stand between him and his future. And what he felt for her was growing into hatred. You're not serious, she asked. He turned to her. He spoke rapidly, easily. He was lying now, and so he was sure of himself, and it was not difficult. I love you, Dominique. I'm crazy about you. Give me a chance. If there's no one else, why not? You'll learn to love me, because I understand you. I'll be patient. I'll make you happy. She shuddered suddenly, and then she laughed. She laughed simply, completely. He saw the pale foam of her dress trembling. 
She stood straight, her head thrown back, like a string shaking with the vibrations of a blinding insult to him. An insult, because her laughter was not bitter or mocking, but quite simply gay. Then it stopped. She stood looking at him. She said earnestly, Peter, if I ever want to punish myself for something terrible, if I ever want to punish myself disgustingly, I'll marry you, she added. Consider it a promise. I'll wait, no matter what reason you choose for it. Then she smiled gaily, the cold, gay smile he dreaded. Really, Peter, you don't have to do it, you know. You'll get that partnership anyway. And we'll always be good friends. Now it's time for you to go home. Don't forget you're taking me to the horse show Wednesday. Oh, yes, we're going to the horse show Wednesday. I adore horse shows. Good night, Peter. He left and walked home through the warm spring night. He walked savagely. If at that moment someone had offered him sole ownership of the firm of Francon and Hire at the price of marrying Dominique, he would have refused it. He knew also, hating himself, that he would not refuse if it were offered to him on the following morning. Chapter 15 This was fear. This was what one feels in nightmares, thought Peter Keating. Only then one awakes when it becomes unbearable, but he could neither awaken nor bear it any longer. It had been growing for days, for weeks, and now it had caught him, this lewd, unspeakable dread of defeat. He would lose the competition. He was certain that he would lose it, and the certainty grew as each day of waiting passed. He could not work. He jerked when people spoke to him. He had not slept for nights. He walked toward the house of Lucius Hire. He tried not to notice the faces of the people he passed, but he had to notice. He had always looked at people, and people looked at him as they always did. He wanted to shout at them and tell them to turn away, to leave him alone. They were staring at him, he thought, because he was to fail, and they knew it. He was going to Hire's house to save himself from the coming disaster in the only way he saw left to him. If he failed in that competition, and he knew he was to fail, Francone would be shocked and disillusioned. Then if Hire died, as he could die at any moment, Francone would hesitate, in the bitter aftermath of a public humiliation, to accept Keating as his partner. If Francone hesitated, the game was lost. There were others waiting for the opportunity. Bennett, whom he had been unable to get out of the office, Claude Stengel, who had been doing very well on his own, and had approached Francone with an offer to buy Hire's place. Keating had nothing to count on except Francone's uncertain faith in him. Once another partner replaced Hire, it would be the end of Keating's future. He had come too close and had missed. That was never forgiven. Through the sleepless nights, the decision had become clear and hard in his mind. He had to close the issue at once. He had to take advantage of Francone's deluded hopes before the winner of the competition was announced. He had to force Hire out and take his place. He had only a few days left. He remembered Francone's gossip about Hire's character. He looked through the files in Hire's office and found what he had hoped to find. It was a letter from a contractor written fifteen years ago. It stated merely that the contractor was enclosing a check for twenty thousand dollars due Mr. Hire. Keating looked up the records for that particular building. It did seem that the structure had cost more than it should have cost. That was the year when Hire had started his collection of porcelain. He found Hire alone in his study. It was a small, dim room, and the air in it seemed heavy, as if it had not been disturbed for years. 
The dark mahogany paneling, the tapestries, the priceless pieces of old furniture were kept faultlessly clean, but the room smelt somehow of indigence and of decay. There was a single lamp burning on a small table in a corner, and five delicate precious cups of ancient porcelain on the table. Hire sat hunched, examining the cups in the dim light with a vague, pointless enjoyment. He shuddered a little when his old valet admitted Keating, and he blinked in vapid bewilderment, but he asked Keating to sit down. When he heard the first sounds of his own voice, Keating knew he had lost the fear that had followed him on his way through the streets. His voice was cold and steady. Tim Davis, he thought, Claude Stengel, and now just one more man to be removed. He explained what he wanted, spreading upon the still air of the room, one short, concise, complete paragraph of thought, perfect as a gem with clean edges. And so, unless you inform Francone of your retirement tomorrow morning, he concluded, holding the letter by a corner between two fingers, this goes to the AGA. He waited. Hire sat still, with his pale, bulging eyes blank, and his mouth open in a perfect circle. Keating shuddered and wondered whether he was speaking to an idiot. Then Hire's mouth moved, and his pale pink tongue showed, flickering against his lower teeth. But I don't want to retire. He said it simply, guilelessly, in a little petulant whine. You will have to retire. I don't want to. I'm not going to. I'm a famous architect. I've always been a famous architect. I wish people would stop bothering me. They all want me to retire. I'll tell you a secret. He leaned forward. He whispered slyly, "You may not know it, but I know. He can't deceive me. Gee wants me to retire. He thinks he's outwitting me, but I can see through him. That's a good one on Gee." He giggled softly. "I don't think you understood me." Do you understand this? Keating pushed the letter into Hire's half-closed fingers. He watched the thin sheet trembling as Hire held it. Then it dropped to the table, and Hire's left hand, with the paralyzed fingers, jabbed at it blindly, purposelessly, like a hook. He said, gulping, "You can't send this to the AGA. They'll have my license taken away." Certainly," said Keating. "They will, and it will be in the papers, in all of them." You can't do that. I'm going to, unless you retire. Hire's shoulders drew down to the edge of the table. His head remained above the edge, timidly, as if he were ready to draw it also out of sight. You won't do that, please. You won't. Hire mumbled in one long whine without pauses. You're a nice boy. You're a very nice boy. You won't do it, will you? The yellow square of paper lay on the table. Hire's useless left hand reached for it, crawling slowly over the edge. Keating leaned forward and snatched the letter from under his hand. Hire looked at him, his head bent to one side, his mouth open. He looked as if he expected Keating to strike him, with a sickening, pleading glance that said he would allow Keating to strike him. Please, whispered Hire, "You won't do that, will you? I don't feel very well. I've never hurt you. I seem to remember." I did something very nice for you once. What? Snapped Keating. What did you do for me? Your name's Peter Keating. Peter Keating. Remember, I did something nice for you. You're the boy Gee has so much faith in. Don't trust Gee. I don't trust him. 
but I like you. We'll make you a designer one of these days. His mouth remained hanging open on the word. A thin strand of saliva trickled down from the corner of his mouth. Please, don't. Keating's eyes were bright with disgust. Aversion goaded him on. He had to make it worse, because he couldn't stand it. You'll be exposed publicly, said Keating, the sounds of his voice glittering. You'll be denounced as a grafter. People will point at you. They'll print your picture in the papers. The owners of that building will sue you. They'll throw you in jail. Hire said nothing. He did not move. Keating heard the cups on the table tinkling suddenly. He could not see the shaking of Hire's body. He heard a thin glassy ringing in the silence of the room, as if the cups were trembling themselves. Get out, said Keating, raising his voice, not to hear that sound. Get out of the firm. What do you want to stay for? You're no good. You've never been any good. The yellow face at the edge of the table opened its mouth and made a wet gurgling sound, like a moan. Keating sat easily, leaning forward, his knees spread apart, one elbow resting on his knee, the hand hanging down, swinging the letter. I... Hire choked. I... Shut up. You've got nothing to say except yes or no. Think fast now. I'm not here to argue with you. Hire stopped trembling. A shadow cut diagonally across his face. Keating saw one eye that did not blink, and half a mouth, open, the darkness flowing in through the hole into the face as if it were drowning. Answer me, Keating screamed, frightened suddenly. Why don't you answer me? The half-face swayed, and he saw the head lurch forward. It fell down on the table, then went on and rolled to the floor as if cut off. Two of the cups fell after it, cracking softly to pieces on the carpet. The first thing Keating felt was relief to see that the body had followed the head, and lay crumpled in a heap on the floor intact. There had been no sound, only the muffled musical bursting of porcelain. He'll be furious, thought Keating, looking down at the cups. He had jumped to his feet. He was kneeling, gathering the pieces pointlessly. He saw that they were broken beyond repair. He knew he was thinking also, at the same time, that it had come, that second stroke they had been expecting, and that he would have to do something about it in a moment, but that it was all right, because Hire would have to retire now. Then he moved on his knees closer to Hire's body. He wondered why he did not want to touch it. Mr. Hire he called. His voice was soft, almost respectful. He lifted Hire's head cautiously. He let it drop. He heard no sound of its falling. He heard the hiccup in his own throat. Hire was dead. He sat beside the body, his buttocks against his heels, his hands spread on his knees. He looked straight ahead. His glance stopped on the folds of the hangings by the door. He wondered whether the gray sheen was dust or the nap of velvet. And was it velvet? And how old-fashioned it was to have hangings by a door. Then he felt himself shaking. He wanted to vomit. He rose, walked across the room, and threw the door open, because he remembered that there was the rest of the apartment somewhere and a valet in it, and he called, trying to scream for help. Keating came to the office as usual. He answered questions. He explained that Hire had asked him that day to come to his house after dinner. Hire had wanted to discuss the matter of his retirement. No one doubted the story. 
and Keating knew that no one ever would. Hire's end had come as everybody had expected it to come. Francone felt nothing but relief. We knew he would, sooner or later, said Francone. Why regret that he spared himself and all of us a prolonged agony? Keating's manner was calmer than it had been for weeks. It was the calm of blank stupor. The thought followed him, gentle, unstressed, monotonous, at his work, at home, at night. He was a murderer. No, but almost a murderer. Almost a murderer. He knew that it had not been an accident. He knew he had counted on the shock and the terror. He had counted on that second stroke, which would send Hire to the hospital for the rest of his days. But was that all he had expected? Hadn't he known what else a second stroke could mean? Had he counted on that? He tried to remember. He tried, wringing his mind dry. He felt nothing. He expected to feel nothing, one way or another. Only he wanted to know. He did not notice what went on in the office around him. He forgot that he had but a short time left to close the deal with Francone about the partnership. A few days after Hire's death, Francone called him to his office. Sit down, Peter, he said, with a brighter smile than usual. Well, I have some good news for you, kid. They read Lucius' will this morning. He had no relatives left, you know. Well, I was surprised. I didn't give him enough credit, I guess, but it seems he could make a nice gesture on occasion. He's left everything to you. Pretty grand, isn't it? Now you won't have to worry about investment when we make arrangements for... What's the matter, Peter? Peter, my boy, are you sick? Keating's face fell upon his arm on the corner of the desk. He could not let Francone see his face. He was going to be sick. Sick. Because through the horror, he had caught himself wondering how much higher had actually left. The will had been made out five years ago, perhaps in a senseless spurt of affection for the only person who had shown higher consideration in the office, perhaps as a gesture against his partner. It had been made and forgotten. The estate amounted to $200,000, plus Hire's interest in the firm and his porcelain collection. Keating left the office early that day, not hearing the congratulations. He went home, told the news to his mother, left her gasping in the middle of the living room, and locked himself in his bedroom. He went out saying nothing before dinner. He had no dinner that night, but he drank himself into a ferocious lucidity at his favorite speakeasy. And in that heightened state of luminous vision, his head nodding over a glass, but his mind steady, he told himself that he had nothing to regret. He had done what anyone would have done. Catherine had said it. He was selfish. Everybody was selfish. It was not a pretty thing to be selfish, but he was not alone in it. He had merely been luckier than most. He had been, because he was better than most. He felt fine. He hoped the useless questions would never come back to him again. Every man for himself, he muttered, falling asleep on the table. The useless questions never came back to him again. He had no time for them in the days that followed. He had won the Cosmoslotnik competition. Peter Keating had known it would be a triumph, but he had not expected the thing that happened. He had dreamed of a sound of trumpets. He had not foreseen a symphonic explosion. It began with the thin ringing of a telephone, announcing the names of the winners. Then every phone in the office joined in, screaming, bursting from under the fingers of the operator who could barely control the switchboard. 
calls from every paper in town, from famous architects, questions, demands for interviews, congratulations. Then the flood rushed out of the elevators, poured through the office doors. The messages, the telegrams, the people Keating knew, the people he had never seen before. The reception clerk losing all sense, not knowing whom to admit or refuse, and Keating shaking hands, an endless stream of hands, like a wheel with soft, moist cogs flapping against his fingers. He did not know what he said at that first interview, with Francone's office full of people and cameras. Francone had thrown the doors of his liquor cabinet wide open. Francone gulped to all these people that the Cosmos Slotnik building had been created by Peter Keating alone. Francone did not care. He was magnanimous in a spurt of enthusiasm. Besides, it made a good story. It made a better story than Francone had expected. From the pages of newspapers, the face of Peter Keating looked upon the country, the handsome, wholesome, smiling face with the brilliant eyes and the dark curls. It headed columns of print about poverty, struggle, aspiration, and unremitting toil that had won their reward, about the faith of a mother who had sacrificed everything to her boy's success, about the Cinderella of architecture. Cosmo Slotnik were pleased. They had not thought that prize-winning architects could also be young, handsome, and poor. Well, so recently poor. They had discovered a boy genius. Cosmo Slotnik adored boy geniuses. Mr. Slotnick was one himself, being only forty-three. Keating's drawings of the most beautiful skyscraper on earth were reproduced in the papers, with the words of the award underneath. For the brilliant skill and simplicity of its plan, for its clean, ruthless efficiency, for its ingenious economy of space, for the masterful blending of the modern with the traditional in art, to Francone and Heyer and Peter Keating. Keating appeared in newsreels, shaking hands with Mr. Shoup and Mr. Slotnick, and the subtitle announced what these two gentlemen thought of his building. Keating appeared in newsreels, shaking hands with Miss Dimples Williams, and the subtitle announced what he thought of her current picture. He appeared at architectural banquets and at film banquets, in the place of honor, and he had to make speeches, forgetting whether he was to speak of buildings or of movies. He appeared at architectural clubs and at fan clubs, Cosmo Slotnick put out a composite picture of Keating and of his building, which could be had for a self-addressed stamped envelope and two bits. He made a personal appearance each evening for a week on the stage of the Cosmo Theater, with the first run of the latest Cosmo Slotnick special. He bowed over the footlights, slim and graceful in a black tuxedo, and he spoke for two minutes on the significance of architecture. He presided as judge at a beauty contest in Atlantic City, the winner to be awarded a screen test by Cosmo Slotnick. He was photographed with a famous prize fighter under the caption, Champions. A scale model of his building was made and sent on tour, together with the photographs of the best among the other entries, to be exhibited in the foyers of Cosmo Slotnick theaters throughout the country. Mrs. Keating had sobbed at first, clasped Peter in her arms and gulped that she could not believe it. She had stammered, answering questions about Petey, and had posed for pictures, embarrassed, eager to please. Then she became used to it. She told Peter, shrugging, that of course he had won. It was nothing to gape at. No one else could have won. She acquired a brisk little tone of condescension for the reporters. She was distinctly annoyed when she was not included in the photographs taken of Petey. She acquired a mink coat. Keating let himself be carried by the torrent. He needed the people and the clamor around him. There were no questions and no doubts when he stood on a platform over a sea of faces. The air was heavy, compact, 
saturated with a single solvent, admiration. There was no room for anything else. He was great, great as the number of people who told him so. He was right, right as the number of people who believed it. He looked at the faces, at the eyes. He saw himself born in them. He saw himself being granted the gift of life. That was Peter Keating. That, the reflection in those staring pupils. And his body was only its reflection. He found time to spend two hours with Catherine one evening. He held her in his arms, and she whispered radiant plans for their future. He glanced at her with contentment. He did not hear her words. He was thinking of how it would look if they were photographed like this together, and in how many papers it would be syndicated. He saw Dominique once. She was leaving the city for the summer. Dominique was disappointing. She congratulated him quite correctly, but she looked at him as she had always looked, as if nothing had happened. Of all architectural publications, her column had been the only one that had never mentioned the Cosmoslotnik competition, or its winner. I'm going to Connecticut, she told him. I'm taking over Father's place down there for the summer. He's letting me have it all to myself. No, Peter, you can't come to visit me, not even once. I'm going there so I won't have to see anybody. He was disappointed, but it did not spoil the triumph of his days. He was not afraid of Dominique any longer. He felt confident that he could bring her to change her attitude, that he would see the change when she came back in the fall. But there was one thing which did spoil his triumph. Not often, and not too loudly. He never tired of hearing what was said about him, but he did not like to hear too much about his building. And when he had to hear it, he did not mind the comments on the masterful blending of the modern with the traditional in its facade. But when they spoke of the plan, and they spoke so much of the plan, when he heard about the brilliant skill and simplicity, the clean, ruthless efficiency, the ingenious economy of space, when he heard it and thought of, he did not think it. There were no words in his brain. He would not allow them. There was only a heavy, dark feeling and a name. For two weeks after the award, he pushed this thing out of his mind, as a thing unworthy of his concern, to be buried as his doubting, humble past was buried. All winter long he had kept his own sketches of the building with the pencil lines cut across them by another's hand. On the evening of the award he had burned them. It was the first thing he had done. But the thing would not leave him. Then he grasped, suddenly, that it was not a vague threat, but a practical danger. And he lost all fear of it. He could deal with a practical danger. He could dispose of it quite simply. He chuckled with relief. He telephoned Rourke's office and made an appointment to see him. He went to that appointment confidently. For the first time in his life, he felt free of the strange uneasiness which he had never been able to explain or escape in Rourke's presence. He felt safe now. He was through with Howard Rourke. Rourke sat at the desk in his office, waiting. The telephone had rung once that morning, but it had been only Peter Keating asking for an appointment. He had forgotten now that Keating was coming. He was waiting for the telephone. He had become dependent on that telephone in the last few weeks. He was to hear at any moment about his drawings for the Manhattan Bank Company. His rent on the office was long since overdue. So was the rent on the room where he lived. He did not care about the room. He could tell the landlord to wait. The landlord waited. It would not have mattered greatly if he had stopped waiting. 
but it mattered at the office. He told the rental agent that he would have to wait. He did not ask for the delay. He only said flatly, quietly, that there would be a delay, which was all he knew how to do. But his knowledge that he needed this alms from the rental agent, that too much depended on it, had made it sound like begging in his own mind. That was torture. All right, he thought, it's torture. What of it? The telephone bill was overdue for two months. He had received the final warning. The telephone was to be disconnected in a few days. He had to wait. So much could happen in a few days. The answer of the bank board, which Weidler had promised him long ago, had been postponed from week to week. The board could reach no decision. There had been objectors, and there had been violent supporters. There had been conferences. Weidler told him eloquently little, but he could guess much. There had been days of silence, of silence in the office, of silence in the whole city, of silence within him. He waited. He sat, slumped across the desk, his face on his arm, his fingers on the stand of the telephone. He thought dimly that he should not sit like that, but he felt very tired today. He thought that he should take his hand off that phone, but he did not move it. Well, yes, he depended on that phone. He could smash it, but he would still depend on it. He and every breath in him, and every bit of him. His fingers rested on the stand without moving. It was this, and the mail. He had lied to himself also about the mail. He had lied when he had forced himself not to leap, as a rare letter fell through the slot in the door, not to run forward, but to wait, to stand looking at the white envelope on the floor, then to walk to it slowly and pick it up. The slot in the door, and the telephone. There was nothing else left to him of the world. He raised his head, as he thought of it, to look down at the door, at the foot of the door. There was nothing. It was late in the afternoon, probably past the time of the last delivery. He raised his wrist to glance at his watch. He saw his bare wrist. The watch had been pawned. He turned to the window. There was a clock he could distinguish on a distant tower. It was half-past four. There would be no other delivery today. He saw that his hand was lifting the telephone receiver. His fingers were dialing the number. No, not yet, Weidler's voice told him over the wire. We had that meeting scheduled for yesterday, but it had to be called off. I'm keeping after them like a bulldog. I can't promise you that we'll have a definite answer tomorrow. I can almost promise you. If not tomorrow, then it will have to wait over the weekend, but by Monday I promise it for certain. You've been wonderfully patient with us, Mr. Rourke. We appreciate it. Rourke dropped the receiver. He closed his eyes. He thought he would allow himself to rest, just to rest blankly like this for a few minutes, before he would begin to think of what the date on the telephone notice had been and in what way he could manage to last until Monday. Hello, Howard, said Peter Keating. He opened his eyes. Keating had entered and stood before him, smiling. He wore a light tan spring coat, thrown open, the loops of its belt like handles at his sides, a blue cornflower in his buttonhole. He stood, his legs apart, his fists on his hips, his hat on the back of his head, his black curls so bright and crisp over his pale forehead that one expected to see drops of spring dew glistening on them as on the cornflower. Hello, Peter, said Rourke. Keating sat down comfortably, took his hat off, dropped it in the middle of the desk, and clasped one hand over each knee with a brisk little slap. 
Well, Howard, things are happening, aren't they? Congratulations. Thanks. What's the matter, Howard? You look like hell. Surely you're not overworking yourself, from what I hear. This was not the manner he had intended to assume. He had planned the interview to be smooth and friendly. Well, he decided he'd switch back to that later. But first he had to show that he was not afraid of Rourke, that he'd never be afraid again. No, I'm not overworking. Look, Howard, why don't you drop it? That was something he had not intended saying at all. His mouth remained open a little, in astonishment. Drop what? The pose. Oh, the ideals, if you prefer. Why don't you come down to earth? Why don't you start working like everybody else? Why don't you stop being a damn fool? He felt himself rolling down a hill, without brakes. He could not stop. What's the matter, Peter? How do you expect to get along in the world? You have to live with people, you know. There are only two ways. You can join them or you can fight them. But you don't seem to be doing either. No, not either. And people don't want you. They don't want you. Aren't you afraid? No. You haven't worked for a year, and you won't. Who will ever give you work? You might have a few hundreds left, and then it's the end. That's wrong, Peter. I have fourteen dollars left, and fifty-seven cents. Well, and look at me. I don't care if it's crude to say that myself. That's not the point. I'm not boasting. It doesn't matter who says it. But look at me. Remember how we started? Then look at us now. And then think that it's up to you. Just drop that fool delusion that you're better than everybody else and go to work. In a year, you'll have an office that'll make you blush to think of this dump. You'll have people running after you. You'll have clients. You'll have friends. You'll have an army of draftsmen to order around. Hell, Howard, it's nothing to me. What can it mean to me? But this time I'm not fishing for anything for myself. In fact, I know that you'd make a dangerous competitor. But I've got to say this to you. Just think, Howard. Think of it. You'll be rich. You'll be famous. You'll be respected. You'll be praised. You'll be admired. You'll be one of us. Well? Say something. Why don't you say something? He saw that Rourke's eyes were not empty and scornful, but attentive and wondering. It was close to some sort of surrender for Rourke, because he had not dropped the iron sheet in his eyes, because he allowed his eyes to be puzzled and curious, and almost helpless. Look, Peter, I believe you. I know that you have nothing to gain by saying this. I know more than that. I know that you don't want me to succeed. It's all right, I'm not reproaching you. I've always known it. You don't want me ever to reach these things you're offering me and yet you're pushing me on to reach them quite sincerely. And you know that if I take your advice, I'll reach them. And it's not love for me, because that wouldn't make you so angry and so frightened. Peter, what is it that disturbs you about me as I am? I don't know, whispered Keating. He understood that it was a confession, that answer of his, and a terrifying one. He did not know the nature of what he had confessed, and he felt certain that Rourke did not know it either. But the thing had been bared. They could not grasp it, but they felt its shape. And it made them sit silently, facing each other, in astonishment, in resignation. Pull yourself together, Peter, said Rourke gently, as to a comrade. We'll never speak of that again. Then Keating said suddenly, his voice clinging in relief to the bright vulgarity of its new tone, Ah, oh, hell, Howard, I was only talking good plain horse sense. Now, if you wanted to work like a normal person, shut up.
snapped Rourke. Keating leaned back, exhausted. He had nothing else to say. He had forgotten what he had come here to discuss. Now, said Rourke, what did you want to tell me about the competition? Keating jerked forward. He wondered what had made Rourke guess that. And then it became easier, because he forgot the rest in a sweeping surge of resentment. Oh, yes, said Keating crisply, a bright edge of irritation in the sound of his voice. Yes, I did want to speak to you about that. Thanks for reminding me. Of course you'd guess it, because you know that I'm not an ungrateful swine. I really came here to thank you, Howard. I haven't forgotten that you had a share in that building. You did give me some advice on it. I'll be the first one to give you part of the credit. That's not necessary. Oh, it's not that I'd mind, but I'm sure you wouldn't want me to say anything about it. And I'm sure you don't want to say anything yourself, because you know how it is. People are so funny. They misinterpret everything in such a stupid way. But since I'm getting part of the award money, I thought it's only fair to let you have some of it. I'm glad that it comes at a time when you need it so badly. He produced his billfold, pulled from it a check he had made out in advance, and put it down on the desk. It read, Pay to the order of Howard Rourke, the sum of five hundred dollars. Thank you, Peter, said Rourke, taking the check. Then he turned it over, took his fountain pen, wrote on the back, Pay to the order of Peter Keating, signed, and handed the check to Keating. And here's my bribe to you, Peter, he said, for the same purpose, to keep your mouth shut. Keating stared at him blankly. That's all I can offer you now, said Rourke. You can't extort anything from me at present, but later, when I'll have money, I'd like to ask you please not to blackmail me. I'm telling you frankly that you could, because I don't want anyone to know that I had anything to do with that building. He laughed at the slow look of comprehension on Keating's face. No, said Rourke. You don't want to blackmail me on that? Go home, Peter. You're perfectly safe. I'll never say a word about it. It's yours. The building and every girder of it and every foot of plumbing and every picture of your face in the papers. Then Keating jumped to his feet. He was shaking. God damn you, he screamed. God damn you. Who do you think you are? Who told you that you could do this to people? So you're too good for that building? You want to make me ashamed of it? You rotten, lousy, conceited bastard. Who are you? You don't even have the wits to know that you're a flop, an incompetent, a beggar, a failure, a failure, a failure. And you stand there pronouncing judgment. You against the whole country. You against everybody. Why should I listen to you? You can't frighten me. You can't touch me. I have the whole world with me. Don't stare at me like that. I've always hated you. You didn't know that, did you? I've always hated you. I always will. I'll break you some day. I swear I will if it's the last thing I do. Peter, said Rourke, why betray so much? Keating's breath failed on a choked moan. He slumped down on a chair. He sat still, his hands clasping the sides of the seat under him. After a while he raised his head. He asked woodenly, Oh, God, Howard. What have I been saying? Are you all right now? Can you go? Howard, I'm sorry. I apologize if you want me to. His voice was raw and dull, without conviction. I lost my head. Guess I'm just unstrung. I didn't mean any of it. I don't know why I said it. Honestly, I don't. Fix your collar. It's unfastened. 
I guess I was angry about what you did with that check. But I suppose you were insulted, too. I'm sorry. I'm stupid like that sometimes. I didn't mean to offend you. We'll just destroy the damn thing. He picked up the check, struck a match, cautiously watched the paper burn till he had to drop the last scrap. Howard, we'll forget it? Don't you think you'd better go now? Keating rose heavily. His hands poked about in a few useless gestures, and he mumbled, Well, well, good night, Howard. I'm, I'll see you soon. It's because so much has happened to me lately. Guess I need a rest. So long, Howard. When he stepped out into the hall and closed the door behind him, Keating felt an icy sense of relief. He felt heavy and very tired, but drearily sure of himself. He had acquired the knowledge of one thing. He hated Rourke. It was not necessary to doubt and wonder and squirm in uneasiness any longer. It was simple. He hated Rourke. The reasons? It was not necessary to wonder about the reasons. It was necessary only to hate, to hate blindly, to hate patiently, to hate without anger, only to hate and let nothing intervene, and not let oneself forget, ever. The telephone rang late on Monday afternoon. Mr. Rourke, said Widler, can you come right over? I don't want to say anything over the phone, but get here at once. The voice sounded clear, gay, radiantly premonitory. Rourke looked at the window, at the clock on the distant tower. He sat laughing at that clock, as at a friendly old enemy. He would not need it any longer. He would have a watch of his own again. He threw his head back in defiance to that pale gray dial hanging high over the city. He rose and reached for his coat. He threw his shoulders back, slipping the coat on. He felt pleasure in the jolt of his muscles. In the street outside, he took a taxi which he could not afford. The chairman of the board was waiting for him in his office with Widler and with the vice president of the Manhattan Bank Company. There was a long conference table in the room, and Rourke's drawings were spread upon it. Widler rose when he entered and walked to meet him, his hand outstretched. He was in the air of the room, like an overture to the words Widler uttered, and Rourke was not certain of the moment when he heard them, because he thought he had heard them the instant he entered. Well, Mr. Rourke, the commission's yours, said Widler. Rourke bowed. It was best not to trust his voice for a few minutes. The chairman smiled amiably, inviting him to sit down. Rourke sat down by the side of the table that supported his drawings. His hand rested on the table. The polished mahogany felt warm and living under his fingers. It was almost as if he were pressing his hand against the foundations of his building, his greatest building, fifty stories to rise in the center of Manhattan. I must tell you, the chairman was saying, that we've had a hell of a fight over that building of yours. Thank God it's over. Some of our members just couldn't swallow your radical innovations. You know how stupidly conservative some people are. But we found a way to please them, and we've got their consent. Mr. Widler here was really magnificently convincing on your behalf. A great deal more was said by the three men. Rourke barely heard it. He was thinking of that first bite of machine into earth that begins an excavation. Then he heard the chairman saying, And so it's yours, on one minor condition. He heard that, and looked at the chairman. It's a small compromise. 
and when you agree to it, we can sign the contract. It's only an inconsequential matter of the building's appearance. I understand that you modernists attach no great importance to a mere facade. It's the plan that counts with you, quite rightly. And we wouldn't think of altering your plan in any way. It's the logic of the plan that sold us on the building. So I'm sure you won't mind. What do you want? It's only a matter of a slight alteration in the facade. I'll show you. Our Mr. Parker's son is studying architecture, and we had him draw us up a sketch, just a rough sketch to illustrate what we had in mind, and to show the members of the board because they couldn't have visualized the compromise we offered. Here it is. He pulled a sketch from under the drawings on the table and handed it to Rourke. It was Rourke's building on the sketch, very neatly drawn. It was his building. But it had a simplified Doric portico in front, a cornice on top, and his ornament was replaced by a stylized Greek ornament. Rourke got up. He had to stand. He concentrated on the effort of standing. It made the rest easier. He leaned on one straight arm, his hand closed over the edge of the table, the tendons showing under the skin of his wrist. You see the point, said the chairman soothingly. Our conservatives simply refuse to accept a queer, stark building like yours, and they claim that the public won't accept it either. So we hit upon a middle course. In this way, though it's not traditional architecture, of course, it will give the public the impression of what they're accustomed to. It adds a certain air of sound, stable dignity, and that's what we want in a bank, isn't it? It does seem to be an unwritten law that a bank must have a classic portico, and a bank is not exactly the right institution to parade law-breaking and rebellion. Undermines that intangible feeling of confidence, you know. People don't trust novelty, but this is the scheme that pleased everybody. Personally, I wouldn't insist on it, but I really don't see that it spoils anything, and that's what the board has decided. Of course, we don't mean that we want you to follow this sketch, but it gives you our general idea, and you'll work it out yourself. Make your own adaptation of the classic motive to the façade. Then Rourke answered. The men could not classify the tone of his voice. They could not decide whether it was too great a calm or too great an emotion. They concluded that it was calm, because the voice moved forward evenly, without stress, without color, each syllable spaced as by a machine. Only the air in the room was not the air that vibrates to a calm voice. They concluded that there was nothing abnormal in the manner of the man who was speaking, except the fact that his right hand would not leave the edge of the table, and when he had to move the drawings, he did it with his left hand, like a man with one arm paralyzed. He spoke for a long time. He explained why this structure could not have a classic motive on its facade. He explained why an honest building, like an honest man, had to be of one piece and one faith. What constituted the life source, the idea in any existing thing or creature, and why, if one smallest part committed treason to that idea, the thing or the creature was dead, and why the good, the high, and the noble on earth was only that which kept its integrity. The chairman interrupted him. Mr. Rourke, I agree with you. There's no answer to what you're saying. But unfortunately, in practical life, one can't always be so flawlessly consistent. There's always the incalculable human element of emotion. We can't fight that with cold logic. This discussion is actually superfluous. I can agree with you, but I can't help you. The matter is closed. It was the board's final decision, after more than usually prolonged consideration, as you know. Will you let me appear before the board and speak to them? I'm sorry, Mr. Rourke but the board will not reopen the question for further debate. It was final. 
I can only ask you to state whether you agree to accept the commission on our terms or not. I must admit that the board has considered the possibility of your refusal, in which case the name of another architect, one Gordon L. Prescott, has been mentioned most favorably as an alternative. But I told the board that I felt certain you would accept. He waited. Rourke said nothing. You understand the situation, Mr. Rourke? Yes, said Rourke. His eyes were lowered. He was looking down at the drawings. Well? Rourke did not answer. Yes or no, Mr. Rourke? Rourke's head leaned back. He closed his eyes. No, said Rourke. After a while, the chairman asked, Do you realize what you're doing? Quite, said Rourke. Good God, Weidler cried suddenly. Don't you know how big a commission this is? You're a young man. You won't get another chance like this. And... All right, damn it all, I'll say it. You need this. I know how badly you need it. Rourke gathered the drawings from the table, rolled them together, and put them under his arm. It's sheer insanity, Weidler moaned. I want you. We want your building. You need the commission. Do you have to be quite so fanatical and selfless about it? What? Rourke asked incredulously. Fanatical and selfless. Rourke smiled. He looked down at his drawings. His elbow moved a little, pressing them to his body. He said, That was the most selfish thing you've ever seen a man do. He walked back to his office. He gathered his drawing instruments and the few things he had there. It made one package, and he carried it under his arm. He locked the door and gave the key to the rental agent. He told the agent that he was closing his office. He walked home and left the package there. Then he went to Mike Donegan's house. No? Mike asked, after one look at him. No, said Rourke. What happened? I'll tell you some other time. The bastards! Never mind that, Mike. How about the office now? I've closed the office. For good? For the time being. God damn them all, Red. God damn them. Shut up. I need a job, Mike. Can you help me? Me? I don't know anyone in those trades anymore. Not anyone that would want me. You know them all. In what trades? What are you talking about? In the building trades. Structural work, as I've done before. You mean a plain workman's job? I mean a plain workman's job. You're crazy, you goddamn fool. Cut it, Mike. Will you get me a job? But why in hell? You can get a decent job in an architect's office. You know you can. I won't, Mike. Not ever again. Why? I don't want to touch it. I don't want to see it. I don't want to help them do what they're doing. You can get a nice, clean job in some other line. I would have to think on a nice, clean job. I don't want to think. Not their way. It will have to be their way no matter where I go. I want a job where I won't have to think. Architects don't take workmen's jobs. That's all this architect can do. You can learn something in no time. I don't want to learn anything. You mean you want me to get you into a construction gang here in town? That's what I mean. No, God damn you, I can't. I won't. I won't do it. Why? Red, to be putting yourself up like a show for all the bastards in this town to see? 
For all the sons of bitches to know they brought you down like that. For all of them to gloat. Rourke laughed. I don't give a damn about that, Mike. Why should you? Well, I'm not letting you. I'm not giving the sons of bitches that kind of treat. Mike, Rourke said slowly. There's nothing else for me to do. Hell yes, there is. I told you before. You'll be listening to reason now. I got all the dough you need until... I'll tell you what I've told Austin Heller. If you ever offer me money again, that'll be the end between us. But why? Don't argue, Mike. But... I'm asking you to do me a bigger favor. I want that job. You don't have to feel sorry for me. I don't. But... But what'll happen to you, Red? Where? I mean... Your future. I'll save enough money and I'll come back. Or maybe someone will send for me before then. Mike looked at him. He saw something in Rourke's eyes which he knew Rourke did not want to be there. Okay, Red, said Mike softly. He thought it over for a long time. He said, Listen, Red, I won't get you a job in town. I just can't. It turns my stomach to think of it but I'll get you something in the same line. All right, anything. It doesn't make any difference to me. I've worked for all of that bastard Frank Cohn's pet contractors for so long, I know everybody ever worked for him. He's got a granite quarry down in Connecticut. One of the foremen's a great pal of mine. He's in town right now. Ever worked in a quarry before? Once. Long ago. Think you'll like that? Sure. I'll go see him. We won't be telling him who you are. Just a friend of mine, that's all. Thanks, Mike. Mike reached for his coat, and then his hands fell back, and he looked at the floor. Red, it will be all right, Mike. Rourke walked home. It was dark, and the street was deserted. There was a strong wind. He could feel the cold, whistling pressure strike his cheeks. It was the only evidence of the flow ripping the air. Nothing moved in the stone corridor about him. There was not a tree to stir, no curtains, no awnings, only naked masses of stone, glass, asphalt, and sharp corners. It was strange to feel that fierce movement against his face. But in a trash basket on a corner, a crumpled sheet of newspaper was rustling, beating convulsively against the wire mesh. It made the wind reel. In the evening two days later, Rourke left for Connecticut. From the train, he looked back once at the skyline of the city as it flashed into sight and was held for some moments beyond the windows. The twilight had washed off the details of the buildings. They rose in thin shafts of a soft porcelain blue, a color not of real things, but of evening and distance. They rose in bare outlines, like empty molds waiting to be filled. The distance had flattened the city. The single shafts stood immeasurably tall, out of scale to the rest of the earth. They were of their own world, and they held up to the sky the statement of what man had conceived and made possible. They were empty molds, but man had come so far, he could go farther. The city on the edge of the sky held a question, and a promise. Little pinheads of light flared up about the peak of one famous tower, in the windows of the Star Roof restaurant. Then the train swerved around a bend, and the city vanished. That evening, in the banquet hall of the Star Roof restaurant, 
A dinner was held to celebrate the admittance of Peter Keating to partnership in the firm to be known henceforward as Francone and Keating. At the long table that seemed covered, not with a tablecloth, but with a sheet of light, sat Guy Francone. Somehow tonight, he did not mind the streaks of silver that appeared on his temples. They sparkled crisply against the black of his hair, and they gave him an air of cleanliness and elegance, like the rigid white of his shirt against his black evening clothes. In the place of honor sat Peter Keating. He leaned back, his shoulders straight, his hand closed about the stem of a glass. His black curls glistened against his white forehead. In that one moment of silence, the guests felt no envy, no resentment, no malice. There was a grave feeling of brotherhood in the room, in the presence of the pale, handsome boy who looked solemn as at his first communion. Ralston Holcomb had risen to speak. He stood his glass in hand. He had prepared his speech, but he was astonished to hear himself saying something quite different, in a voice of complete sincerity. He said, We are the guardians of a great human function, perhaps of the greatest function among the endeavors of man. We have achieved much, and we have erred often. But we are willing in all humility to make way for our heirs. We are only men, and we are only seekers. But we seek for truth with the best there is in our hearts. We seek with what there is of the sublime granted to the race of men. It is a great quest to the future of American architecture. Part 2 Ellsworth M. Toohey Chapter 1 To hold his fists closed tight, as if the skin of his palms had grown fast to the steel he clasped. To keep his feet steady, pressed down hard, the flat rock an upward thrust against his soles. Not to feel the existence of his body, but only a few clots of tension. His knees, his wrists, his shoulders, and the drill he held. To feel the drill trembling in a long convulsive shudder. To feel his stomach trembling, his lungs trembling, the straight lines of the stone ledges before him dissolving into jagged streaks of trembling. To feel the drill in his body gathered into the single will of pressure, that a shaft of steel might sink slowly into granite. This was all of life for Howard Rourke, as it had been in the days of the two months behind him. He stood on the hot stone in the sun. His face was scorched to bronze, his shirt stuck in long, damp patches to his back. The quarry rose about him in flat shelves, breaking against one another. It was a world without curves, grass, or soil, a simplified world of stone planes, sharp edges, and angles. The stone had not been made by patient centuries welding the sediment of winds and tides. It had come from a molten mass cooling slowly at unknown depth. It had been flung, forced out of the earth, and it still held the shape of violence against the violence of the men on its ledges. The straight planes stood witness to the force of each cut. The drive of each blow had run in an unswerving line. The stone had cracked open in unbending resistance. Drills bored forward with a low, continuous drone, the tension of the sound cutting through nerves, through skulls, as if the quivering tools were shattering slowly both the stone and the men who held them. He liked the work. He felt at times as if it were a match of wrestling between his muscles and the granite. He was very tired at night. He liked the emptiness of his body's exhaustion. 
Each evening he walked the two miles from the quarry to the little town where the workers lived. The earth of the woods he crossed was soft and warm under his feet. It was strange, after a day spent on the granite ridges. He smiled as at a new pleasure each evening, and looked down to watch his feet crushing a surface that responded, gave way, and conceded faint prints to be left behind. There was a bathroom in the garret of the house where he roomed. The paint had peeled off the floor long ago, and the naked boards were gray-white. He lay in the tub for a long time, and let the cool water soak the stone dust out of his skin. He let his head hang back on the edge of the tub, his eyes closed. The greatness of the weariness was its own relief. It allowed no sensation but the slow pleasure of the tension leaving his muscles. He ate his dinner in a kitchen with other quarry workers. He sat alone at a table in a corner. The fumes of the grease, crackling eternally on the vast gas range, hid the rest of the room in a sticky haze. He ate little. He drank a great deal of water. The cold, glittering liquid in a clean glass was intoxicating. He slept in a small wooden cube under the roof. The boards of the ceiling slanted down over his bed. When it rained, he could hear the burst of each drop against the roof, and it took an effort to realize why he did not feel the rain beating against his body. Sometimes after dinner, he would walk into the woods that began behind the house. He would stretch down on the ground on his stomach, his elbows planted before him, his hands propping his chin, and he would watch the patterns of veins on the green blades of grass under his face. He would blow at them and watch the blades tremble, then stop again. He would roll over on his back and lie still, feeling the warmth of the earth under him. Far above, the leaves were still green, but it was a thick, compressed green, as if the color were condensed in one last effort before the dusk coming to dissolve it. The leaves hung without motion against a sky of polished lemon yellow. Its luminous pallor emphasized that its light was failing. He pressed his hips, his back, into the earth under him. The earth resisted, but it gave way. It was a silent victory. He felt a dim, sensuous pleasure in the muscles of his legs. Sometimes, not often, he sat up and did not move for a long time. Then he smiled, the slow smile of an executioner watching a victim. He thought of his days going by, of the buildings he could have been doing, should have been doing, and perhaps never would be doing again. He watched the pain's unsummoned appearance with a cold, detached curiosity. He said to himself, well, here it is again. He waited to see how long it would last. It gave him a strange, hard pleasure to watch his fight against it, and he could forget that it was his own suffering. He could smile in contempt, not realizing that he smiled at his own agony. Such moments were rare, but when they came, he felt as he did in the quarry, that he had to drill through granite, that he had to drive a wedge and blast the thing within him which persisted in calling to his pity.